Hello, everyone. So kasama po natin today, my very good friend, one of the leading historians of the Philippines who's finally getting, you know, uh, the kind of re recognition and respect for his fantastic original work. Not that we completely agree on everything. Let me just throw it out there. But that's precisely why we ha we want to have this kind of discussion. So uh, kasama po natin, no, no less than Joseph Scalis. What was it? Scalici? Should I say Italiano style? Like, how do I yeah. say it? Amigo. <laughs> Lolo ko sa tuhod is Caliche, pero unti yung tinig ng Scalise, Americanized. Okay, Americanized. Because Caliche, saan sa Italy galing yung lolo mo? Sa tuhod mo? Sicily. It's like, yeah! No, they were fishermen. They migrated to the United States, became tailors. My grandfather was a carpenter. Right. Of course, they were all fishermen, right? Like that's what yes. I mean. All Sicilians are. No, of course, all all Sicilians. Official uh, occupation, fishermen, and then yes. official occupation, right? Yeah, official occupation, fishermen, and Cosa Nostra. Yeah, uh, Cosa Nostra. So, <laughs> Joseph, um, do you have a nickname? I mean, uh, ano bang nickname mo, Joseph? Uh, Palayo was Pepe. I've been called Pepe, Pepe since yeah, I was like, yeah, I've been called Pepe since I was like six or seven, I think. Right. So, yeah. so Pepe, um, before pag-usapan natin yung bago mong libro, no? this is a fantastic uh, book, Drama of Dictatorship. I think it's one of the most original stuff coming out. Not that I didn't have a preview of it. I think I've been following very well your works, your speeches, your talks throughout the years, even during pandemic. You're, you had fantastic um, you know, uh, presentations, especially when you were also in Singapore. Uh, and they really informed also my understanding of the Philippines foreign policy during the Cold War period. Pero bago natin puntan itong libro mo, which I think is really fantastic work. Can you share a little bit uh, about your own background? Bakit ang galing mo magtagalog, Joseph? It's the product of my upbringing. I mean, my childhood uh, home, uh, the place that I've spent the majority of my life is in the Philippines. Um, and I, I never tire of explaining this. I mean, yeah, but yeah. we so, moved to the Philippines when I was five, turning six. So, uh, yung tatay ko naging missionary, lumipat kami uh, na Manila, tumira kami sa San Juan, Quezon City, Cainta, uh, Pasig, iba't ibang lugar sa Manila uh, from 1983 until the 1990s. Wow. Mubanik naman ako as an adult to Tarlac, um, both as a minister myself in my youth when I was in my 20s, mm -hmm. and then subsequently as an academic. Um and uh, I'm in my 40s now, but I have spent the majority of my life in the Philippines, and it is my home. Although my passport is American, my my heart belongs in the Philippines and always will. But hindi lang yung heart mo, pati hindi mo, di ba? Pinoy na Pinoy, mas maganda pa. I saw your TikTok. I really suggest everyone, kaysa watching all of this ridiculous, you know, yeah. I hate yung mga YouTuber, you know, they just get some random. Ay, nako. Random, I don't know, redneck guy. No, Joseph is the real deal. Please follow his TikTok. Ikaw, ano tingin mo doon sa mga yun? Salamat. No, no Pinoy baiting. It's so ostentatious. I, like, I, I raise my eyebrows, you know, like, oh, here we go again. And like, oh. Filipinos are so happy. It's like, come on, they should learn our language. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, clickbait. Ang kanon na magaling magtagalog. Or ilokan. Whatever. 
So can you tell me a little bit about that? Because 1983, like that's quite a crucial year in Philippines. Yes, history, it right? was like, a crucial year. I mean, the timing was kind of perfect and horrible at the same time. Can you tell me about it? As, a, as, a, you know, as someone who barely had full consciousness, you come to this country in the midst of political revolution almost, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I was I was a child, uh, but um, my father was, uh, to his credit, uh, an impulsive man who did what he thought was the correct thing to do, what he thought, in his words, God wanted him to do. And in 1983, uh, he was the pastor of a church in the United States, and he received a letter from a total stranger in the Philippines. Anyway, na nagyaya sa kanya na pumunta sa Pilipinas at ano, ipangaral daw ang Ibanghelyo. So right. my father, uh, not knowing this person at all, traveled to the Philippines, uh, spoke in churches. And when he came back to the United States, he was so moved by what he had seen um, that he told us we were moving to the country. And then Nino Aquino was assassinated, August 1983. Um, but our plans did not change. Uh, and in that same year, shortly after Nino was killed, uh, we went to the Philippines, uh, and yeah, that's it. Can you tell it us was a very, very interesting time? Yeah, yeah, Joseph. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that era? I mean, from from what you remember, of course, like you were like five, six year old, not necessarily you know fully formed right. consciousness, but still, you. I mean, if, if things were so big or traumatic in a certain sense, you should remember a thing or two, right? What was right. it, growing up as a cano in in mm. Filipinas, mm. the the last mm. the twilight years of the Marcos dictatorship. Yeah, it's a good question. Of course, it's always hard to pick apart what is our memories and what we've subsequently reconstructed. I'm a historian and I know the 80s backwards and forwards now. But what I remember of my memories right. um, is the impressions that I had. Uh, I was, I suppose, precocious. I was aware of a social world at a very young age. Right. I knew that the country that we were going to, even when I was five or six, was under a dictatorship. I knew what that meant. Um, I knew that people were not fully free. I knew there was danger and that there were that there was the possibility that people would be arrested and killed. I was also aware, uh, although I did not know fully what it meant, but I was aware that there was a communist insurgency. The NPA was mm. widely spoken of. Nice people around, no permanent address, etc., etc., etc. Um, nice people alone, sorry, I'm going to Okay, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry about that. No, no, no. No, no, no. Uh, anyway, um, uh, I mean, feeling, feeling, uh, and uh, what I do remember vividly, two things from that time. Uh, one, my parents were not politically left-wing, certainly, in any way. That would be far from the case. Uh, uh, I think at this point in their in their development, they were probably fairly apolitical. At any rate, to the extent that they voted, I think they probably would have voted Republican. Uh, but I remember their chagrin, shame, even outrage at the way in which the Reagan administration backed Marcos. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush announcing that uh, uh, America celebrated Mr. Marcos's adherence to democratic principles. And above all, in 1986, when the Reagan administration said that there was cheating on both sides in the SNAP election, yeah. those were moments, I think, for my parents of great shame as Americans. Like, I remember my father saying, how do I go out and talk to people when the country that I represent is saying these things that everyone knows are false and are so horrible? The other thing I remember, of course, is the ouster of Marcos itself. I remember I did not go to EDSA. 
Um, I uh, was living in Santa Mesa at the time, sa Gitna ng mga squatter. Pero uh, I remember um, jets flying. I remember radio, listening to the radio. I remember just a sense of palpable excitement. I thought the world was going to be much, much better. I, I that, everyone was flashing Laban signs. Um, and I I was full of hope at the age of nine years old. Nine, yeah, 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 that that everything was going to be better. February 1986. I remember the entire Aquino administration vividly. That I lived through. The most vivid memory for someone living in Manila at the time was probably just walang ano, walang tigil na brown out. Araw araw may brown out. Um, walang corriente. And then, of course, Ramos, etc. So I lived through all of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, can we rewind a little bit? Because, I mean, let's talk about impressions and memories, right? Um, so what do you say to people? They say, oh, the Philippines was like one of the richest countries, Panoni Marcos, and, you know, I'm saying all of that golden era, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, the whole kutspa, right? right? What do you tell about people based on the reality, the, the raw texture of reality you were confronting during that era as, a, you know, a son of a missionary who was, you know, trying to deal with very difficult circumstances, right? I mean, you guys right. were there preaching to, to people who were in desperate conditions. Can you tell us a yes. little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, the, the, I mean, there's wealth and there's wealth. Yeah, there was wealth, but it was in the pocket of an extremely very small number um, that hasn't really changed. Exactly, uh, like it, sounds familiar. It's like, exactly, that hasn't really changed. I mean, some of the faces have changed, but um, in terms of the lives of ordinary people, it was characterized by grinding poverty right. um, and political repression. Um, and I will say that, uh, neither of those things have gone away, but the political repression of the Marcos dictatorship, uh, was substantially more mm -hmm. than what was manifested, uh, under Aquino and company afterwards. And I'm not going to downplay the fact that there was a continuity of political repression embodied through Enrile and Ramos and so mm -hmm. on in subsequent administrations, but anyone who paints martial law as a golden age is either Danding Kowanko, for whom martial law was a golden age, or- Literally, literally. Yeah. Exactly, literally, one of the Rolex 12, or someone who has been systematically lied to. And I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to someone who has been that lied to because they feel that life has been miserable for so many decades. Exactly, exactly. That there must have been something, in, there must have been a point in the past that they fell from. And uh, they've been told for a very long time that there was, there were two things. There was martial law and there was, you know, democracy that came after it. And if democracy has been so miserable for the last 40 years, right. then maybe it's because we've been lied to and martial law was actually the good period when everyone was disciplined and the Philippines was progressive. I think but, the binary but, kind of thinking. That yes, it's, it's, right. it's a reversal of binary thinking exactly. and it's, it's deeply dishonest. Uh, or disinformed. Um, yes, exactly. That matter. Uh, let me talk more about this. I mean, your your father was a missionary. And of course, I suppose as Americans in the 1980s, you guys kind of traveled around. I mean, I, have you been in Latin America, other parts of Asia? Like, I wonder how you compare the Philippines to other developing countries, for instance, right? I mean, because obviously the Philippines is not America. It's not the West, despite all the pretensions and all. But I mean, how did the Philippines under Marcos compare to, you know, 
neighboring Mexico, which was also under a form of dictatorship, single party rule during this I time. did briefly visit Mexico. Right. I was able to go to China before Tiananmen. Right. Uh, I visited Bangkok briefly. But to be perfectly honest, we traveled very little. Mm. Um, we, I lived all over the place in Manila. We moved every year. So, bawat sulok ng Manila halos kapisado. But um, we didn't leave the country very often, to be honest. Yeah. Our our budget wasn't that great. And when we did leave, we just went back home to the United States, from which we were then securing additional funding to go back. Right. So in terms of my impressions of the time, I would have to say fairly limited. I could speak to it yeah. as a scholar, but I couldn't speak to it as my childhood impression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're still talking about Joseph the person before we talk about Joseph the scholar. Now, let's shift a little bit because maybe later in time, Chica Minute and all of that. Like, now let's... let's, let's Let's look at it as historians. Um, so this is the Marcus dictatorship, but uh, many would say that you know the Marcus dictatorship itself also didn't come out of a vacuum, right? It, you know, it's not like it. Because this is my problem. A lot of anti-Marcus people and anti-Duterte people kind of operate under this so-called trouble in paradise hypothesis, right? Yes. Like things were perfect if we just gave it some time. This you know this pesky people didn't come and ruin it. And it's like, no, that's not the truth. The Philippines was already primed for, for, for trouble by yes. the 1960s and all. Because I want to talk about that a little bit, a little bit more rewind, uh, rewind a little bit before we go further into the past. Yep. Just slightly rewind and forward. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't, we can get into this a good deal at some point. This is the heart of my book exactly. is the context in which Marcos imposed martial law. And it was, he was not an interloper in the Garden of Eden uh, by any means. Uh, he was the victor in a system where everyone by 1970 was angling for dictatorship. A couple points could briefly be made. One, the constitutional provision for the imposition of martial law was written into the Philippine constitution by the Americans. There are a number of anti-democratic clauses in the 1935 Constitution that were drawn up effectively by the Americans during the colonial period. Among them, the Declaration of Martial Law, the ability to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, the absence of trial by jury. All of these are the product of the American colonial period and the need they saw for military rule. And president upon president tried to impose martial law. Um, Carlos P. Garcia, Sinubucanya, Justado Macapagal, Sinubucanya, El Pijo Quedino. Latinito. They never succeeded. Um, not the way Marcos did. Legal capital, imagination, the entrepreneurship. Like what was lacking with all of this uh budding but eventually failed frustrated dictators or would be dictators? I, I I mean we shouldn't downplay the fact that Marcos was, you know, hate him, but he was a brilliant man. Uh I don't think that's the explanation, but he was a smarter man than many of his predecessors. But that's not the fundamental reason. The fundamental reason, I argue, is, and this is a critical component of my book, uh, when Marcos imposed dictatorship, there was a social crisis that gripped not only the Philippines, but much of the globe, a social crisis that was marked by uh, global economic crisis. Uh, the, they were on the eve of skyrocketing oil prices bound up with the global oil market, not specific to the Philippines. Um, social unrest coupled with the America's war in Vietnam that was deeply unpopular. It was a time of upheaval. 
And in this context, it wasn't just Marcos. It was Suharto in Indonesia and Pinochet in Chile. Um, it was the 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 park dis dictatorship in Korea. It was a dictatorship in Portugal and in Greece. Uh, it, there was a global climate of dictatorship. And America backed these dictatorships to serve its own geopolitical interests in the Cold War. It backed Marcos to the hilt. Uh, those are the words of Richard Nixon. Um, it was this more than anything else, this global condition of social crisis that made martial law possible. But but of course you need a man to meet the moment, right? So I completely you agree. You do, and that that was Ferdinand Marcos. But that's not because there weren't other people trying. Exactly, uh, it's not. There were Marcos. other aspirants. One of the critical interventions of my book is to point out that the opposition to Marcos, while they were certainly opposed to Marcos, were not opposed to dictatorship. That is to say, the elite opposition, uh, the Lopez family, Osmeña, uh, and above all, Nino Aquino. Uh, were at the time, from the end of 1969, when Marcos was re-elected, until the imposition of dictatorship in 1972, attempting to use extra-legal, unconstitutional means to take power and to impose martial law themselves. They were not defending democracy. That's a myth that they invented after 1978. They were uh, attempting to set themselves up in Malacanang rather than Marcos, who had been there too long. Um, and Osmania hired assassins to try to kill Marcos. The Lopez brothers uh, funded the uh, the unrest of the times and provided it an outlet through ABS, CBN, and other outlets uh, in an attempt to secure the interests of Meralco. And Nino Aquino, in particular, was the man who would be king uh, and declared to uh, political officers of the U.S. Embassy that if he managed to take power, he intended to impose martial law. None of this, and I want to be crystal clear about this, none of this justifies what Marcos did. Marcos, in the end, was the criminal. But there was agreement in the elite that they intended to impose dictatorship. He was not the lone aspirant to right. military rule. He was just more successful than the others. He was. The reason, Joseph, I want to emphasize this, you know, not to throw shades at anyone in particular, but... You know, we have all of this stuff coming out, you know, how to stand up to a dictator, meaning Duterte and all. And I always say, like, it takes skills and smarts to be a dictator just because you have authoritarian predilection, you know, from Berlusconi to, I don't know, Erdogan. To, it doesn't automatically make you a dictator. Being a dictator means you systematically overturn a certain order. You create a whole regime that allows you to consolidate power. I think this is important because people equate Duterte to Marcos when it's a very different context, right? This they're is they're, they're different politically, and it is a very different context. I agree. Right. Yeah. There, there are similarities. Both of them are and were willing to kill to achieve their ends. There is a certain rapacious amorality to both men. There is a, and and they both represent a section of the ruling establishment that has the conviction that social unrest must be violently suppressed, that effectively the democratic institutions of government no longer suffice to maintain social order, and right. they need to be scrapped and replaced with some form of dictatorship. That is a commonality, but they have a different social base. Uh, the, the mayor of Davao coming and representing death squads and so on is very different than Marcos, who was in many ways the sort of suave representative of new business, 
uh, a lawyer who became politician, uh, a much more competent figure, I would argue. Um, and while, yes, I agree with you, it does take smarts or a good deal of luck or representing social layers who themselves have smarts to become a dictator. It doesn't. It's not It's not just anyone. Um, it also requires a social context. Right. Um, no matter no matter how much you may uh, aspire to military dictatorship, I may aspire to be dictator. It's never going to happen. Uh, I don't, by the way. But um, the point is, it requires someone who is politically positioned to represent a class that is itself uh, as, as a collective uh, embodying a tendency to scrap democracy. And this is precisely what Marcos Sr. represented. Uh, Joseph, I, I want to go transition to Ninoy because I want to then forward a little bit uh, to more contemporary era, especially the transition from Marcos to the post uh, Marcos Etza regime. Um, now, I had some interesting discussion with our good friend Lelo Claudio, right? I mean, this yes. connection and all. And, and Lelo is just brutally, you know, I'm just like, he just puts it this way, like, um, you know, like it came down to like, pare, sino mauna sa atin? Like Ninoy and Marcos, essentially. No, I mean, they were like frat mates, very similar mindset, both brilliant guys, very ambitious. So, kumbaga parang unahan na lang yan, di ba? Like, it, it was a very kind of a personal competition thing. It's a question it of each other. That was like a security dilemma situation. Do you kind of agree with that point of view? At least a younger Ninoy um, was just as ambitious and you know yes for it kind of guy you could you could make the argument uh i'm not making this argument because i'm not the expert on this uh although i know a lot about it but you could make the argument that ninoy had some sort of imprisoned conversion moment where he became something right. more of a democratic figure in the mid to late 1970s that's, argument, essentially. that's outside that's outside the scope of my argument um I would actually probably push back against that, given Nino's mm. behavior in the 1980s in exile. But that's neither here nor there. What we're talking about is Nino Aquino, the man from, say, 1967, okay. when he becomes senator. The young Nino, let's just put it that way. Exactly. The non young Nino was unbelievably ambitious and extraordinarily talented. And he and Marcos really were the uh, the rivals that stood as sort of titans on the Philippine landscape. There were all sorts of other political figures, but none that could rival the head of the the sort of the collective Nacionalista Party, Marcos on the one hand, and the head of the Liberal Party, Nino Aquino on the other. Now there were differences between the two men, one of which I think proved decisive. Marcos represented new money. Uh, he represented sort of newly industrial interests and so on. This isn't to say that sugar barons and so on couldn't come into the Marcos camp. They could, but I think his origin and his alliances and so on, that was... Psychology, his... right? The, the mindset, this kind of a parvenu mindset. Yes, hugely yeah. so. That, yeah, that, and he was, and, and it's, it, it inflects every aspect of who he is. Exactly. He was always obsessed with self-construction. Right. Uh, he, everything that he did was to create a reputation from manufacturing his guerrilla past uh, with war medals and everything to creating movies and biographies that were entirely made up uh, to having people ghostwrite books to prove that he was an intellectual to literally writing lies in his own diary uh, because he knew someday his diary gonna, would be they're idiots who are going to really take it too seriously, right? Exactly. When but you, you imagine like, you the know degree this of... guy knows he's going to be read. Like, it's the, just, come on. Like, the degree of self-obsession that requires that you sit down every day to write in the diary, what's my lie of the day for posterity? <laughs> so at the same time, that's Marcos. Also, Marcos was very proud of that. He could memorize his speeches. 
right. 30, 40 minute speech. Very no exaggeration. Marcos would I deliver it from memory. Yeah. Um, and he was a talented orator. Um, Nino Aquino was the child of extraordinary privilege. Uh, he was born to wealth. Marcos was kind of born to an upper middle class provincial yeah. family. Right. Uh, from, Nino Ilocos, and Ilocos yes. is really poor back then. Yeah, let's just be very. Yeah, clear. he was. He was not. He was not the child of immense wealth. Nor was he the child. Let's not make a myth. He was not the child of great poverty. He was no, sort no. of from an upper middle class yeah. lawyer family. Um, and aspired to political greatness. Aquino was the child of political privilege and immense wealth and married into even more wealth when he married Cori Cofanco at a very young age. Um, he was the son of the vice president of the Japanese occupation. And that was not an innocent role. I mean, this was, his father was responsible for directly overseeing the sort of fascist apparatus of Japanese military rule with all its brutality. Nino Aquino was in, Japan at the end of World War II as a child, along with the Laurel family. Uh, and when America bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, Aquino was with the imperial, the Japanese imperial family. Um, but he came back to the Philippines and like all of the other Japanese collaborator families, all of the wealthy collaborators, the crimes of his oh, family were immediately yeah, pardoned. Yeah. And uh his his life was one uninterrupted series of successes uh he was the the boy wonder is what people called him the, kid. Yeah, yeah. the journalist in korea and then he runs for office and he's the youngest vice mayor and he's the youngest yeah. mayor and he's the youngest governor and then he becomes the youngest senator yeah. by the long shot no one will ever beat him he was the youngest senator in philippine yeah. history he was too young to be elected when he was elected but when he took office he had just passed passed the constitutionally mandated yeah. limit and i think this went to his head i think nino aquino genuinely believed that he would never be defeated mm. and this gave a certain audacity to everything that he did a certain recklessness one final point one counterpoint to marcos marcos liked to memorize all his speeches aquino liked to ad-lib his speeches like he would just get up in front of the crowd and say things and the crowd ate it up <laughs> Which is why I'm not surprised when Lelo said, "Ang pinaka idol ni Digong ay hindi si Marcos, actually si Nino daw yung pinaka idol niya." I mean, like now I can see the ad lib part kind of makes sense. No, of course, I mean this this Nino playing left and then playing right. I mean, remember yes. this about Duterte sa sa gabi ay umaga, I don't know. So umaga sa barak sa gabi nandun sa bundok. You know this kind of a octopus style, right? I mean, this was a, what what made Nino also very special, right? Duterte was a child of the 1960s, uh, and not a child like a little boy. Like this was what his formative moment as a as a young man was at Lyceum under Joma Sison and the Lavas, uh, and admiring both Marcos and Aquino, uh, and uh, looking at the political landscape and imagining himself shaping it. Yeah. No. Let me forward a little bit now. I know you know we're doing this a little bit Star Wars style episode six four three, but don't worry. We'll <laughs> matter. I'm just making sure people are hooked into our conversation because I see I can see the responses. People are very happy. You know how I do it. I'm doing it like a vlogger now. So while it's juicy, let's keep it here. Now it seems that you don't necessarily buy the argument of the arc of redemption, right? I'm willing to make that argument, right? Um, I'm not a historian. I'm of course I'm approaching it as a political scientist guy, but I'm willing to you know, consider the possibility of arc of redemption. Uh, whether, but I mean, the point of the guy putting himself literally in the front, yeah, I mean, it, it, the audacity there is really something unmatched as far as 20th century Philippine politics concerned, perhaps. But let me forward a little bit because we, as much as we just throw around the idea of dictator, like, oh, eto dictator, ne, eto, 
there's another thing we also easily throw around, which is revolution, right? It's a revolution, and it's a dot, whatever. Uh, and 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 obviously we know it. Usually our understanding of real revolution is when things really revolve, literally, yes. right? So the French Revolution, classic case, Iranian Revolution, classic case, 1979, Russian Revolution, classic case, Chinese Revolution, because you clearly had the Tsarist yes. was gone, the Pahlavi dynasty was gone, the Bourbon were gone at least for a while. And then you come to the Philippines and then it's like, I'm not sure how much it fits that classic understanding of what is revolution, even etymologically, how does it even fit the word? Because it looks like it's just a, a kind of full restoration of a semi-marginalized old elite. And it's not like the Marcoses really also went away permanently. They were back by 1991, 1992, Imelda is already yes. running. For the, so like, in what sense was Etsa a revolution and in what sense it was not? Because, you know, technically speaking, lawyers would argue, we talked to Robin Carranza, they would say, well, it's a revolution in the sense that there was at least a regime change. You know, regime in a sense, the cabal that was ruling was slightly eased out. But at the same time, there was no socioeconomic transformation. So how much of a revolution was the so-called Essa revolution? I want to discuss this because this is important because I would argue that, yes, you can make the path dependency argument that many maladies of contemporary Philippines is because of that 20 years. But it's not like we didn't have a chance to make a break, right? It's right. not like South Korea did not have its Park chung -hye. It's not like, you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying it's not an, I'm not saying it doesn't explain, but I don't want it to be an excuse for all the failures we have in the Philippine so-called democracy today. So I'm going to go back to this. How much of a revolution was it? And if it were not a true revolution, why do we think so? Because Cory Aquino, Corazon Aquino had a few months, if not a full year, of really going for a transformational uh, policies, right? I mean, there was a time when we had no new constitution. It was an interregnum. And in that interregnum, there was really a chance for pushing the Philippines towards a new era. Or maybe I'm over estimating the powers that she had because of the RAM and the military situation, civil military relations. You tell me, because I think it's a very good debatable argument. How much of our maladies today is not making use of that interregnum to really transform the Philippines and really get out of the uh, the, the morass that, that we found ourselves for 20 years? It's a good question. It's well-worded. I know it's challenging, right? But I yeah. keep going back to this because I wrestle with this argument over and over again. Yeah. So there are other there are other ways in which governments can be drastically changed. Over, right. You could talk of a, a putsch or right. a coup. I don't think EDSA was a putsch or a coup. I think it was, in a very limited sense, a revolution. But it was a revolution that, in that sense, failed, and I, I'll explain. But I, it was a revolution, and that's bound up with how it played out. Edsa was simultaneously a military coup attempt. But if it had been a military coup attempt on its own, if it had just been Ram, uh, let's let's be honest, Enrile Ramos and company, they would have been crushed. Yeah. Uh, and they would have been crushed quickly. And that was not that was not the motive force of EDSA, but it was a critical component of EDSA right. and shaped the trajectory. Right, right. But at the same time, it was a mass mobilization of the population in the millions uh, with the explicit conception of toppling an existing regime to install a democratically elected government. Now, that's a revolutionary movement. Um, 
And it was the idea of overthrowing a dictator and installing a democratically elected government that had just been voted for. That is the motive force of a revolution. I do not think, however, for the majority of Filipinos that their conception was that all that it would do is put an end to the hated Marcoses and install a sort of Corazon Cojuanco Aquino dynasty that would uh, not engage in meaningful land reform, install a rival faction of sort of the landed oligarchy in power, bring in the apparatus of military dictatorship into her now democratic cabinet in the figures of Enrile and company, and uh, within the space of uh, five years, bring back all of the sort of Marcos cronies and then the Marcos family themselves. Uh, this was not what brought masses of people to EDSA. And thus, we have a political revolution, undeniably, that has ambitions to be, in the broad consciousness of the participants, a social revolution. And that social revolution to succeed, and I don't think it was fully cognized by every participant, and I think you would have gotten 10,000 different answers, but they would have had certain commonalities. It would have entailed meaningful land reform. It would have entailed full employment uh, that had with decent wages, and it would have entailed the restoration of democracy uh, to a fuller form that had constitutional changes and so on and so forth. All of those conceptions were broadly agreed upon by the social layers that ousted Marcos. And the tragedy of the revolution was that, and it's bound up with the fact that it was brought behind the figure of Cory Aquino, who was elected, uh, and to a large extent by the intervention of the Catholic Church. Uh, and Cardinal Sen, uh, that it was that this mass enthusiasm for a genuine revolutionary change was brought behind an administration that was, in the words of Benedict Anderson, a shake in the kaleidoscope of power, uh, that was a rival faction of the oligarchy. And I think most criminally, promptly rehabilitated all of the torturers in chief of the Marcos regime, with the exception of Fabian Ver. Uh, but the forces of Ram and so on, let us be crystal clear, these far from being democratic forces, these are the most anti-democratic forces. The coup that was being staged by Enrile and Ramos and company was being staged not to make Cori Aquino president, but to set up a military junta to replace the Marcoses with Enrile as head of the Philippines. That was his ambition. He thought Marcos was dying and that Imelda would be made president and he didn't want that. And so he was staging a military coup to extend and perfect dictatorship. But in order to per perpetuate her hold on power, threatened by the, the Ram forces, she brought them into her cabinet. And they, over the course of a year, pressured her cabinet drastically to the right, uh, rehabilitating all of the sort of... Uh, many of the excesses of the Marcos dictatorship, and in particular, the apparatus of repression, the creation of Kafgus, that Orwellian term for the uh, uh, sort of Militia. paramilitary forces, et cetera. I think that, that's, that's a long answer, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, an, it's a loaded question. It's a political revolution that does not become a social revolution, precisely because it was brought behind the leadership of the largest landholder in the country, rather than being brought behind the political interests of the masses who were moving in the street. Oh, had Ninoy been 
the guy not assassinated in 1983, assuming that was not really the decisive, you know, moment that, you know, set in motion what will happen three years later. Had Ninoy been the president, uh, had Ninoy been the leader, sorry, during this era, do you think that Ninoy would have had that kind of vision and audacity to push for more transformational change, to oversee not only a political, but also a social political uh, kind of consummated revolution? Was it, I mean, you see, my argument here is that was this also a question of temperament that, you know, it just happened that the widow had to carry the, the you know, the, the baton and perhaps she was not really the best. I would not I would not argue that things would have been identical. Um, there would have been, I think, significant political differences in particular. And I'm speculating here, of course. Yeah, of but, course, these are all counterfactuals. But 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 I think the point that one could speculate most clearly is I suspect that Aquino would have that is to say Ninoy, yeah. would have uh, more disciplined the forces of Enrile and Ramos. Uh, there would, I, I don't think he would have brought them in in quite the way that Corey did. Mm. Uh, he, would have, he would have had to make some sort of settlement with them to secure his hold on power, but I think it would have looked somewhat different. And I think as a result, his hold on power subsequently would have been tighter. Um, what impact that would have had on the course of politics, I don't know precisely. But let me be clear on a second point. I do not believe that there would have been any significant social difference in the outcome of a Ninoy versus a Cory Aquino administration. For all the counterfactual speculation, one fact is crystal clear. They had a common class interest. Ninoy Aquino was no more likely to engage in land reform on Hacienda Luisita than Cory Aquino or to move against the sugar barons. Uh, these were, this was, and this is the, the fundamental, this is the core of my argument. It's not about political personality, although that plays a role. Political personality sits atop social interests, class interests. And Ninoy and Cory had a shared class interest, and that is what ultimately would have determined the shape of their administration. Right. So obviously, we are heading towards the argument of discussing the third force here, which is, you know, the left. But yes. before that, I want to jump a little bit and talk about another critical juncture in Philippines, which is the presidential victory of Duterte, which many people didn't take very seriously initially. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, I on the record by second, third quarter of 2015 was saying he's the dark horse. So uh, even that was considered overestimating the guy, you know, um, uh, but again, you know, um, he won, and 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 many feel that he could have used the immense political capital and charisma he had for really a social transformation. And he himself talked about himself as a socialist. He was kind of an outside the box guy, as much as he's part of a provincial political dynasty. I understand that. What is your understanding of Duterte as another major interregnum or critical juncture in contemporary Philippine history? Again, this is counterfactual, but uh. As much as we want to understand how did we end up with a Duterte, I also understand how Duterte could have, you know, taken us in a completely different direction than what we found ourselves in, right? Because he was kind of like playing this Peron game, right? Kind of both left and military, hybrid. So for me, there was slight chance, not too much, but slight chance that he could have used, I mean, attack on oligarchs, attack on the U.S., that 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 was kind of unprecedented, right? I mean, you can dismiss it as rhetorical, but... There was a time you could feel like, okay, there is some that something could change here, something could give you, right? But of course, eventually we know what happened with the 30. He essentially folded and became a traditional Filipino president, uh, and he failed to become a dictator, if even if he wanted it. But I just want to get your point of view on this because, or uh, am I giving too much credit? Because I, I really no, you're not, you're not you're not giving him too much credit. He was yeah. 
he he was in that sense uh in the sense of sort of his capacity to alter philippine political reality a very substantive political right thing. right but uh, there's a couple points i want to make first in the same way that I made a point about Marcos's martial law not being a specifically Philippine phenomena, but a Philippine manifestation of a global trend, it is unmistakable that Duterte is similarly not, you know, an only in the Philippines sort of moment. Yeah, no. uh, Duterte uh, was in many ways a bellwether of a shift in global politics. Duterte is followed by Trump and Brexit and uh, the full sort of panoply that we've witnessed over the last uh what is it now seven years of uh the emergence of uh far-right politics uh and uh authoritarian politics on the global stage in a way that i think if you had told someone 20 years ago was going to happen they would have said you know that's we've, we've gone through that in the 1930s it's never going to happen again that's the first point. But 20 years ago, we already had Hugo Chavez and Ahmadinejad, and Erdogan was already coming to the forum. Wasn't it that was, it, it was a fundamentally different thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, I mean, even the character of Erdogan was, was different. Of course. Um, so despite the fact that the name Erdogan was on the political landscape, it was different. Nor is there, can we draw an equal sign between an Erdogan and a Duterte? There's closer to an equal sign between a Duterte and a Trump. Uh, at any rate, that's my first point. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm anyway, I don't want to debate with you on that. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. sure, sure. sure. No, no, no. It's good. Actually, debate is good. Uh, but yes, there's a global context. Second, um, Duterte is a political type. We know Duterte's type historically. Uh, it is ultimately fascistic. And I made this argument in print long before he became president. Um, the use of the word socialist is not only not uncommon, but some ways at the core of what it means to be a fascist demagogue. Uh, Mussolini was a socialist, right? I mean, in, in his origins, yes, and claimed to be. And, and Hitler was uh, claimed to be, you know, socialist and nationalist, national socialist. And Duterte was engaged in the same sort of strongman rhetoric. And it's more than rhetoric. His was a politics of the far right. Um, and the language of going after oligarchs is a particularly pointed example of this sort of authoritarian populism that marks a fascist demagogue. Uh, it is not mobilized in opposition to capitalism. They are not anti-capitalist, right. um, but they are targeting certain interests, often racially or ethnically defined. Uh, but they target them as oligarchs. They use this as a means of mobilizing, in particular, the disgruntled middle class uh, behind their platform. And if we look at the ABCDE of support for Duterte, the initial enthusiasm for Duterte came from the upper and middle class, not from the lower class. It required the support of the Communist Party and of the left to bring that sort of level of lower class enthusiasm behind Duterte. And we'll come to the role of the the CPP and company in a bit. Yeah, and uh, speaking of the, the F word, I mean, I think Umberto Eco put it best when he talked about the kind of Ur or your fascism, which is kind of fascism light, right? And and he talked about Henele Franco, Peron, you know, they're like not a scary, crazy, you know, military invasion type as, you know, Mussolini and more scary in the case of Hitler. 
but there's a lot of you know cult of action and counter enlightenment like i think he had like 15 or 16 indicators so i mean once i read umberto eco back in it's like okay now now everything perfectly makes sense to me right because yeah. it's very easy to say how can you call him fascist it's not like he's invading a neighboring country it's not like he has a massive military you know that's like the neil ferguson school of thought of defining what you know the f word is and all and i, and I just wanted to bring it because for me Per Peronismo, you know, the Argentinian precedence is also very fascinating because it was kind of this hybrid play right and play left and there's the military and there's the labor union. There's, like I see a lot of echoes of that, you know, in, in a lot of post-colonial populist uh, governments that we're having uh, today. Again, it, as I know, but but speaking of that, do you still be, do you think that there was still at least a tendency there that Duterte could have turned the country towards a more transformational uh, kind of politics? Even kind of um, Trans you know, transform, transform certainly, uh, but not transform for the better. Mm. There was, uh, to be clear, there was no progressive strand of any sort to Duterte's politics. Uh, my calling him a fascist is not a political swear word. Your citing of Echo is appropriate. Echo's definition is uh, brings together many of the critical elements that I think we find in Duterte. But most critically, for understanding the Philippine context. The unleashing of debt squads uh, and this sort of granting of impunity to the police led to a death toll that I think an accurate estimate is about 30,000 impoverished Filipinos are dead as a direct result of the Duterte administration. Uh, that's blood on his hands. Um, and transformational, if he had succeeded in... Um, securing more support from the military. I think he may have installed himself permanently in office as dictator, and that certainly would have been transformational. Um, and But he did not. And I think in some ways that comes down to two things. One, his flirtation with the CPP, and two, his geopolitics, which was uh, uh, a turnoff for many of the Washington-trained brass in the military. Right. And so now that really brings us to the left, right? Now, before we talk about this left, Duterte, all of these things, so oof, now it's going to get intense. Can you rewind a little bit? When did the really Philippine left in, in the modern sense of the word come out, right? So I don't think this is like pre-Hispanic era. I don't think this is even Hispanic era. I mean, one of the person that always comes to my mind, and I, and I believe is one of the most underappreciated illustrados, quote-unquote, is Isabella de los Reyes, right? Who was an intellectual, not even rival, someone would even say, superseded Rizal and Rizal was so picked by the guy that you know he had to do his own you know version of Philippine anthropology kind of with the semi-questionable bent you know so, so I'm really impressed by Isabel there not because he's my he's a fellow Ilocano but you know like it's also because of what he did later on right when there's a new colonial order he still pushed for the creation of first labor unions in the country he was a major force right um, as far as the birth of modern Philippine left is concerned. I mean, what is your reading of the birth of contemporary Philippine left before we go to the PKP on CPS? Yes, oh, it's, it's a good question. And as a historian, I'm thrilled to be able to go back to the question of origins. Certainly it is connected to Isabella de los Reyes, but the left doesn't, I would argue, originate in the ideas of an individual. Mm. It originates in social movements looking for ideas and individual ideas right. and expression to the social movement. And that's the function of Isabella de los Reyes, right. was that he gave in a largely anarchistic way. Uh, and I use that term as a political theory and not just as someone like spray painting walls. <laughs> but just in, in the sense of a sort of 
the because most of his political ideas were acquired in Spain, which had a long Barcelona, Barcelona, has, yeah, has a long sort of anarchist history, yeah. bound up with sort of small uh, craftsmen and uh, small small agriculture holdings and so on. It found its natural expression not in Marxism but in the ideas of Bakunin and Malatesta and so on. So the the strain of anarchism. Um, but and that's what Isabella de Reyes brought back to the Philippines, and it had in it the idea of workers' movements for uh, the uh, possibly the seizure of power, but certainly to smash the apparatus of repression. But the point that I want to make is that while Isabella de las Reyes brought those ideas and passed them on, they were carried on by, for example, Gregorio Aglipay, um, they they found an audience in right. the Philippines. That's the critical point. Right. There was a constituency for the ideas of the left coming out of the Philippine revolution against Spain. That's the transformative moment. Right. The, the, the question, and we can't go into it extensively here, it's a conversation for another day, but the question that is always asked in Asian studies is why did the Philippines have a national and a democratic revolution uh, so far ahead of the rest of Asia? Uh, what is the conjuncture that makes this possible? And I think it's largely the fact that they were colonized by what had become a backward colonial power. And we're looking, the there was an, a universal tendency, both among the oppressed, but also among the elite to break free of this sort of backwards colonial power. And the elite were perfectly yeah, willing to the themselves to a progressive, that is to say, economically rich colonial power, namely the United States. But this, this impetus of the Philippine Revolution against Spain, which took on constitutional form and the ideas of Mabini, et cetera, had a profoundly democratic content. And one argument that I like to make is that there is actually a deep-seated uh, democratic sentiment in the Philippine population that is not the product of American colonial rule. It is not an expression of the showcase of democracy in Asia. In many ways, it is the countervailing tendency to American colonial rule. It is what expressed itself in the figures of Miguel Malvar and Macario Sakai and so on who fought against the Americans. This is in many ways the sort of the core sort of heart of, of the sort of democratic tradition in the Philippines or at least the genuine democratic tradition. And that found an expression in the left in the Filipino working class in particular, um, in the figures of Isabella de los Reyes, certainly, but it, it found the expression in all sorts of forms. The uh, the famous novel, Banagatsikat by Lope K. Santos, presents itself, and it's quite fascinating, as a socialist novel in 1907. The ideas of socialism were being widely discussed at this point, and there were militant struggles of the working class, massive strikes. Strikes were a key component of the Philippine-American War, as a matter of fact. There was a strike to try to shut down the Philippine waterworks in Manila that was controlled by the Americans and met with violence. Al McCoy writes about this. Right. So I, can't, I can't go into all of this uh, in any detail, um, but it was this that by the 1920s was straining to find organized political expression, and that at this point, because it's after the Russian Revolution, was clearly drawn to the ideas of Marxism, because Marxism works. You look across the across the, the globe and you see Russia has ended the reign of the czar and has put power in the hands of the working class. And that had an extraordinary appeal to workers in around the world and in the Philippines as well. Now, how did we go from, I don't know if you can say social democratic, but okay, anarchistic and social democratic kind of uh, 
left in that sense in the early 20th century, you know, with Isabel de Rosales, among others. And then later on, of course, you have the, you know, the birth of really the communist movement in the Philippines. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The first iteration, let's say communism 1.0, <laughs> as far as the Philippine version of that is concerned, because just neighboring Indonesia would have at one point the third largest communist party in the world, yes. just after Russia, the PKI, PKI no, and and yes. and China. So it's we were quite surrounded here. Like you, you, you get the right. sense of encirclement, right? And obviously, I, I'm sure you'll discuss that later on. Some key figures in the Philippine communist movement later on will be very influenced by their comrades and, and the experience in neighboring Indonesia, the biggest, of course, most influential country at some point. In so I think the critical answer to this, and this is again at the heart of my scholarship, as I, I know you're aware, is the question of the emergence of Stalinism. And what I argue, and I am basing myself here on the conceptions of Marxism articulated by Leon Trotsky. So it's not an academic position outside of Marxism, but a strand of political thought within Marxism itself. The Russian Revolution itself was a workers' revolution. It put power in the hands of the working class, but it did so under in a in a country that was economically catastrophically underdeveloped, devastated by the well, world war and civil war, and then isolated. The conception of the leaders of the Russian Revolution, Lenin and Trotsky, was that the revolution would spread and that the fate of the Soviet Union that emerged depended on revolution, especially in Europe. They were relying on a successful revolution in Germany, and there were attempts at such revolutions that were crushed. But by the early to mid-1920s, Soviet Russia was profoundly isolated. Um, And while they had socialized distribution, that is to say, you know, we have three pencils, so each person gets one. There may have been three pencils, but there were 10 people. There wasn't enough to go around. And so you have socialized distribution of inadequate goods. And so you inevitably wind up with massive inequality. And the bureaucracy at the top of this winds up responsible for policing the inequality. And the the leading expression of this was the figure of Joseph Stalin at the head of the bureaucracy, who became this representative of policing inequality in the Soviet Union that expressed itself in nationalism. Rather than the fight for international revolution, they fought for socialism in one country, a nationalist perspective. And they sought to use communist parties in other countries as sort of bargaining chips to secure the interests of the Soviet Union and not to advance world revolution. That's the critical transformation. And that the reason I went on about that is because the Filipino working class were drawn to Marxism from around the time of 1917 and were drawn to the Marxism of Lenin and Trotsky and the Russian Revolution. Uh, but by the time, and this it was very difficult to get the texts of Marxism to a U.S. colony. Uh, by the time the texts of Marxism and the organizers of the Communist Party show up, there's been a fundamental transformation in world communism. Uh, Leon Trotsky has been sent into exile. Uh, Lenin is dead. And Joseph Stalin is at the head of what is increasingly an apparatus of repression and dishonesty. Uh, so all the things that we know from Orwell uh, about sort of the falsification of the past and so on are now in full play. And it was tragically this that became the embodiment of communism that sort of dragged behind it the revolutionary Filipino working class and peasantry. It was not because the Filipino working class and peasantry were looking for Stalinism. They were not. They were looking for revolution. 
But the Communist Party that was eventually established, and it's a complicated process, and it was by no means a, a sort of linear development. There were countervailing struggles in China and elsewhere. But nonetheless, by the time that it was founded in the Philippines in the, over the course of the 1930s, really, as it grew, uh, it was the political program of Stalinism that determined the course of the Philippine Revolution, that determined the course of the Philippine Communist Party. Uh, can I come here? I mean, not only because yung mga, ano, mga, what my grandfather sa tuhot ko ay malapit to the region where Stalin comes from, right? But but I want to talk about this because if you look at the works of Stephen Kotkin, which has influenced a lot my understanding of Stalin and how he became the kind of a monstrous dictator that he became. I mean, one of the arguments Stephen Kotkin would make is, you know, Stalin was politically successful, right? And he was politically successful because he understood the power of bureaucracy in ways that highly charismatic kind of a swashbuckling kind of uh, people like Trotsky never appreciated. And that really allowed him to also later on not only consolidate power in himself, but also allow Stalin to uh, later on make Russia a great power in ways that it was not for quite some time. We know that Russia was a total mess during the First World War, right? Which many ways uh, undermines our... And just, you can see where the argument is going. The argument is... Uh, so I, I fun, work, I, yes, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to finish up. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. No, 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 what I'm saying is, I just want to understand why Stalinism appealed is because it kind of worked. It really turned... Ro I mean, not in a moral sense, but in a kind of a political, practical sense, or at least that's what it was coming off, right? He made Russia such a modern, powerful country, and perhaps that's what really attracted a lot of people. I, I don't know. Like Again, I'm not making a moral case for the no, whole I, I understand. case so, of Stalin, but I'm just trying to understand the political appeal of Stalinism in this era. Yeah. So several points. First, I fundamentally disagree with Kotkin's sort of approach on this. Um, and the work from whose vantage point? Let's, let's approach it this way. Work from whose vantage point? The aspiration of the self-sacrificing revolutionaries of February to October 1917 uh, in Russia was not great Russian chauvinism. It was not, we can make Russia a great power. They were not nationalists. They did not aspire to the growth of the Russian economy uh, as a sort of the base of political power. They aspired to world socialist revolution. That was their conviction. Permanent revolution. Permanent revolution. Yes, right. that, that was the perspective of the of the Russian Revolution. That is to say, that the revolution within any country uh, must become a permanent revolution by expanding and becoming a revolution on the world stage. Uh, that the fate of revolution in any particular country rests on expanding and becoming a world revolution because capitalism is a world system and must be replaced by socialism, a world system. This is the perspective of Marxism, and was carried forward by Trotsky. Stalinism represented nationalism. And Stalin's victory was not because he understood how power works or something. Stalin was, to be frank, something of a mediocrity. It's why he played no role in the 1917 revolution. Uh, what Stalin embodied were, were economic and social interests. Stalin's victory was the victory of those social forces, not Stalin the man. And I know that's hard to understand because it seems like the victory of an individual because he became such a hugely Bonapartist figure that ruled with absolute power over a nation and to an extent, a significant portion of the globe. But that was not about his cleverness or his will to power. 
any more than Marcos's success in declaring martial law was about Marcos's claim. Yeah, I saw the parallel in the argument in there. Exactly. Yeah. It's about the social forces that he represented. And Stalin rested on the top of the bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy came to political dominance precisely because of the isolated and backwards character of the Soviet worker state in the 1920s. The, the success of the perspective of Trotsky, who emerged as Stalin's rival in the wake of Lenin's death, rested on the spread of the revolution because that was Trotsky's political perspective. The success of Stalin rested on the sort of national isolation of the Soviet Union. So that would be my argument for why Stalin came to such prominence. As for the success in building sort of a great Russian state and so on, Stalinism left that in ashes. It was Stalinism that also liquidated the Soviet Union. It was the Stalinist bureaucracy and the figure of Gorbachev that ultimately put an end to the Soviet Union. And the, the economy of the Soviet Union and the living standards of the Russian population were utterly devastated by this. Um, Stal Stalinism was the death of the Soviet Union, not its, not its I mean, it, you have to sort of isolate it at a particular moment to say that it was a victory for Stalinism. It was not. So it was um, like a good infant industry kind of ideology of like primitive industrialization, but over time it sowed the seed of its own destruction. That's the kind Stalinism of Stalinism inherited. Oh, this is an interesting conversation. Stalinism. Yeah, 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 you know, that's what I'm saying. Like we, we can have a totally different podcast on that, but I just had to throw it there. Yeah, no, okay. Well, I'll do one more. And I know you probably want to come back to the Philippines, which is good. Yeah, but yeah, of course. Stalinism inherited the the methods of social planning, of economic planning that were the legacy of the Russian Revolution. This was not the invention of the Stalinists. In fact, the Stalinists initially rejected the idea of a five-year plan, which was put forward by Trotsky. Um, but the there were tremendous economic efficiencies to social planning, economic planning, even under uh, malign uh, and misguided leadership. Um, and those advantages accrued to the Soviet Union, its capacity to sort of resurrect itself during the Second World War and resist the extraordinary blows uh, of the Nazis, uh, etc., were an expression not of the brilliance of Stalin by any means. Stalin was responsible for devastating his own army by carrying out purges among the general staff. But I mean, rather completely vulnerable to the Nazi invasion. Exactly, yeah. it, it represented rather the, the, the it represented rather the superiority of economic planning for mobilizing the economic resources of a country. Anyway, I, I think that's where you and where you and Kotkin would agree because in the second volume he just talks about what a mess Stalin was uh, by the 1930s and all of that. Fair anyway, enough. I, I, I know I, that's I, not I, where I, we I, want I, to go. That's going to go. No, but, I, you know, but as I said, this is going to be a conversation. I was not here to just ask you questions like an idiot, right? I was always here to kind of push you on certain points because I always enjoy this kind of conversation because these were critical junctures in world history, not yes. Russo-centric or, you know, communist, but this is, this is really, you know, the stuff of the 20th century. Now, exactly. going back to the Philippines, because, you know, looking at your book, you talk about the PKP, then you talk about CPP. What's going on there? For for I mean, let's be honest, Joseph. I think vast number of people are not appreciative of the legacy of the left in the Philippines for many reasons, right? Uh, even as someone who graduated from UP was teaching in UP, I'll be honest, I'm always still a student of this literature, right? And that's why I'm bringing you on on board. Um, can you explain this a little bit? What's who's key PKP? Who are the key figures? Where do do they come from? Where do they head? And then how do they play the game in the Philippines trap of politics, if I can put it that way? Before we talk about CPP, good. Uh, first, the Philippine left 
uh, broadly understood, which ultimately is connected to, in one way or another, to Stalinism, uh, loosely bound around it or in within it, uh, has played an immensely significant role in Philippine history. Uh, it's difficult to overstate. Mm -hmm. There is no event, no development that is not in some way uh, touched upon by uh, by the Philippine left and by the Communist Party. Uh, this shows this sort of the class volatility, the political, uh, the politically uh, searching character of the Filipino working class, I think, but at any rate, a very prominent role. Yeah. Now, when we say the PKP and the CPP, there have been a number of names used for these parties. Right. Um, when I use PKP and CPP, it is the names that they used at the time of the 1960s and 70s. Subsequently, the PKP tried to rebrand itself as PKP 1930, um, but this was not a term used at the time. Um, PKP is the Partido Comunista en Filipinas. It is the founding name of the Communist Party in the Philippines. And occasionally the PKP used the term Communist Party of the Philippines and called themselves CPP. So the literature is confusing. And sometimes what, is my, what I'm calling the CPP also called itself the PKP. But generally understood, there was no CPP, yung partido ni Joe Masison and company, until 1968-1969. Uh, up until then, there was only one Communist Party in the country. It was the PKP. And the PKP was founded in 1930 uh, and then grew out of the merger with uh, the Socialist Party of the Philippines, which was largely a sort of peasant-based radical organization. Um, and I cannot go through all of its history, but some certain critical junctures of the PKP. Yes. One, in keeping with the policy of global Stalinism in the 1930s and 40s, the PKP adopted a popular front policy in the Philippines, which is to say that it supported uh, both uh, the ruling capitalist class in the Philippines, as well as uh, the United States, uh, Great Britain, etc., which they identified as the leading imperialist powers, but nonetheless said, Roosevelt is our ally because we're fighting against the Nazis and the Japanese, etc. Um, and so they adopted a policy of support for the United States in this period. And it was thus at the end of the Hukbalahap rebellion against the Japanese occupation with the reinstatement of American colonial rule that in the early stages, the PKP welcomed the Americans back. And uh, in a truly criminal response, the American government, uh, the returning American forces of Douglas MacArthur, uh, disarmed the Hook guerrillas, imprisoned many of them. Hundreds were actually executed and buried in mass graves. It's a, it's a miserable, miserable moment in Philippine history. These were courageous guerrilla fighters who bravely fought against the Japanese and they were treated as criminals. But the elite who collaborated with the Japanese were rehabilitated and brought back into power and quickly became presidents and senators and congressmen. Um, the only other point that I would make is that after this, after several years of attempt to participate by legal democratic means within the system, the PKP returned to an armed rebellion. Uh, it was a peasant uprising that the PKP took leadership of that was known as the Hook Guerrilla Movement. This was eventually crushed by Magsaysay with the aid of the United States yeah. and the CIA. And it was thus by the late 1950s, and here we get to the story I want to tell, that the PKP was kind of in hiding. It was licking its wounds. It had been devastated by the end of the Hook Guerrilla Movement. There were still guerrillas largely in, I know, 
uh, Angeles, Pampanga, Tarlac, but there were only a few. And they largely turned to sort of gangster activity by this point, parang a la mafia. There was a redistributive yeah. justice, parang Robin Hood, but mostly they were engaged in sort of racketeering. What smuggling. about support from the outside? Soviet support, uh, Chinese support? What's going on here? Support from Indonesia? Was, is, it, is was, it was exceedingly limited in the 19th Exceedingly limited, okay. Uh, there were attempts to contact the Soviet Union. There was a man named Teodosio Lansang who in 1949 left the Philippines and went to China. Subsequently went to the Soviet Union. He was an attempt on the part of the PKP to remain fraternal contacts with the Soviet Union and China. Um, there were other attempts. But in the end, the reintegration of the PKP with world Stalinism, with international communism, came through the PKI in Indonesia. The PKI sent uh, a man who had fought uh, in the Outer Islands campaign for Sukarno, uh, to the Philippines in the at the beginning of the 1960s. He was a graduate student at the University of the Philippines named Bakri Ilyas. And Bakri Ilyas, while pursuing his graduate degree at UP, contacted Jomas. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. And it it was it was Bakri who recruited Jomas Sison ultimately to the perspective of Stalinism. Um Sison was a a budding nationalist at this point. He was writing articles in the Philippine Collegian of a sort of radical national character, very much inspired by Claro Imrecto, but he was not yet a communist. Uh, he was not yet a Stalinist. And it was through the inspiration of Bakri who invited Sison to go to Indonesia that Sison became a, a Stalinist. Sison met with Dipanusantara um, Aidit, who was the head of the PKI, uh, and with other leaders within the Partai Komunis Indonesia. And it was out of that training that he went back to the Philippines and was immediately made a member of the executive committee of the PKP. Um, these were five men who were leading the PKP in 1961. And so something that Joma uh, Sison never liked to talk about is the fact that he was actually instrumental in all of the decisions of the PKP from 1961 until 1967. He wasn't some outside critic. He was the mo moving force of the PKP, along with a man named Ignacio Laxina and several other figures. Uh, and sorry, Joseph. So yes. this claim is based on what archival evidence? What are we talking yes. about? I, sorry, I, I have to be a little bit methodological about it. Sure. Uh, I'm very I'm, confidence. I wanted. I wanted I'm to very. Uh, this is the sort of thing. I'm. This is my bread and butter. Uh, exactly. This. This is based. So Joma Sison published on his website a bibliography of all of his writings, um, and you can just go back and read his writings. Go back and read what he wrote at the time. Uh, read what he wrote in 61, 62, 63, and so on. In 1963, according to Sison's own published writings, Joma Sison organized the support of the PKP for Justado Macapagal. The party, Sison was instrumental in arranging the merger of a workers' party, the Lapiang Mangagawa, with the administration of Justado Macapagal in order to swing Macapagal into the camp of Sukarno during the period of Confrontasi. It was a geopolitical maneuver, and Sison uh, was 
was central to this. Sison wrote the handbook for Macapagal's land reform. Now, this is shocking because in 1970, Sison said that Macapagal's land reform was a collection of lies written by the Americans to serve the landlords. So if you only read Sison in 1970, Sison was always opposed to Macapagal's land reform because it was reactionary. But in fact, actually, Sison was one of the architects of Macapagal's land reform. He was the one that sold it to the peasantry. And he created a political organization of peasants called Masaka, Malayang Samahan Mga out of the funding, funding from Justado Macapagal in 1963 and 64. So there is this legacy of the PKP supporting the Macapagal administration. What, what was with the Macapagal administration that kind of brought them together? Was there, I don't want to use the word progressive, but was there kind of a part of Justado Macapagal that understood something has to change, something has to give? I mean, he had rhetoric mm -hmm. of, he, he claimed to be for the common man. He was from Dobao Pampanga. He claimed to be, you know, from peasant family. So he had this rhetoric of appeal to the poor, but let's be honest, I think every, okay. every politician in the Philippines tries to do this. Yeah. And so on and so forth. Fundamentally, Makapagal's appeal to the PKP wasn't about his social program at all. Macapagal, to be perfectly frank, in his political inclinations was somewhat inclined to Franco. He had a very close friendship with Franco and was drawn to sort of the ideas of the Falange and sort of modified fascism. But he never implemented that in the Philippines. That was his orientation. What appealed to him, what appealed, appealed to the PKP in his policy was that for a brief window in 1963, Macapagal leaned towards the interests of Indonesia in their confrontation over the formation of Malaysia. I've written an article on this. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting juncture. I can't go into all the details. It's quite complicated, but suffice it to say, all of island Southeast Asia was in upheaval in 1963 over the proposal to form Malaysia. Makapagal wanted to prosecute the Philippine claim to Sabah uh, as a barrier to communism. He thought Sabah would prevent the spread of communism coming to the Philippines. But this allied him with Sukarno, and Sukarno was meanwhile allied with the largest communist party outside of the, the communist bloc, the PKI, which is a multi-million communist party. And the PKI had sent Bakri Ilyas to the Philippines to arrange this. So there are clear connections here. Sison right. was prosecuting the interests of the PKI in the Philippines by supporting Macapagal and getting him to lean towards Sukarno. Uh, but the upshot of that was securing peasants for Macapagal. Yeah, just I want to come in here because, again, the, perhaps you agree or don't agree. I mean, you use the term Stalinism, but you know, after reading works like by you know Lovell's, for instance, Maoism and Global History. Uh, my sense is after the death of Stalin, we have a kind of a mutation here and we're more talking about the Maoist understanding of communism during this time. And, and we know Mao had extremely direct influence on the leadership of the PKI until the genocidal campaign that will come in the mid-1970s and essentially end one of the largest parties in the world in the most violent way. So that's why like when I, I, I you know, I kind of stumbled upon your back and forth with some of the, you know, people on the other side as like, why are we talking about Stalinism by this time? Because at this time, it's Maoism, really, right? And, and if you look at Mao, his approach was quite different from Stalin. Yes, you could say he was as repressive, as tyrannical, whatever, but he clearly had an understanding that in countries like the Philippines and Southeast Asia, as we will see in the case of Vietnam, it had to be peasant-driven. It had to be, you know, surrounding the, the urban centers. It didn't have to be as industrial, you know, uh, 
petty bourgeoisie driven as we had in the case of Stalin. So I would say there's some significant differences between Maoism version of Marxism and Stalinist version of Marxism. And and how does that play into the case of the Philippines? Again, I'm, I'm just trying to throw in this issue because I, I just felt I'm not seeing that as much reflection yeah. as the back and forth I've seen in the past few years. Yeah. Good. I mean, this takes us really to the next aspect of the story, which is the Sino-Soviet split. Um, you raised the perfect question for this. Isn't Maoism something fundamentally different? I argue that it isn't. Yes, there are significant distinctions, uh, differences between Mao's variant of what I'm calling Stalinism and the Soviet variant of what I'm calling Stalinism. But my argument is, and this is at the core of my, my work, is that they, they share a common political program for all their differences. And that common program is Stalinism. So Stalinism, in its essence, in my argument, is the perspective of socialism in one country, a two-stage theory of revolution, and a block of four classes. Everything else, all of the differences, and there are many, are built upon this fundamental commonality. More tactical, more tactical. Yes, they are more tactical. And even Maoism itself, uh, if you've read Lovell's book, you know that Maoism goes through phases where it has different tactical representations, right? Maoism isn't one thing, it's many things. Um, Maoism becomes famous for what it is from effectively 1965 to 1971. When people think of that Maoism, they're thinking of that brief window, not say Joe and Lai going to Bandung. That's not, you know, surrounding the city from the countryside and so on. No, we're talking about Lin Giao, protected people's war and so on. It's a very specific window in the history of Mao's ideas. And it's bound up with the national interests of Beijing and Mao's rule. But and that's interesting because, yeah, sorry for cutting you there, because in a way you could say the reason why Mao was going after Khrushchev and the, the gang was because they discarded Stalin. So it's like suddenly Mao was carrying the baton for, I mean, right? I mean, that would be the counter argument here, right? Yeah. That is true. Uh, one of the things that Mao felt most threatened by was Khrushchev's discarding of the cult of personality, which was a critical component of Stalin's rule and a critical component of Mao's rule. Then he saw in Khrushchev's secret speech uh, of 1956 um, and subsequent moves away from some of the excesses of Stalin's rule, a direct attack on his own political rule in China. And he presented himself thus as the adherent to the sort of the core principles of what he would what he argued was Marxism, that is to say what Stalin did. In fact, Mao saw himself as the continuator of that. But I'm arguing that these political excesses, and they were real and they were brutal, the uh, the show trials, the, uh, the gulag, uh, the exterminations, and so on, all of these extraordinary crimes, some of the worst crimes in human history, were manifestations of this program, which was, again, socialism in one country. They were not trying to build socialism on a world scale. That wasn't their fundamental aim. Their fundamental aim was to construct socialism within the confines of their own nation. And extraordinarily, China and the Soviet Union, despite sharing a border, never merged their economies. China was building socialism in one country. The Soviet Union was building socialism in one country. And they had rival national interests. And those national interests quickly conflicted. And it was the conflict of national interests that drove the Sino-Soviet split. Um, and they sought to use the communist parties around the globe 
to their national interests. And it was this competition to secure the loyalty of communist parties that split the communist parties around the globe. This is the root of the Sino-Soviet split in the Philippines and elsewhere. The Soviet Union, uh, by the late 1950s, early 1960s, was comparatively secure. Mm. Obviously, you can't overplay that. We're still in the, the peak of the Cold War. But it has the buffer zone in Eastern Europe. It has China guarding its eastern flank. Um, and it, it, it is comparatively geopolitically secure. And it is an advanced industrial country. It has an economic base of power. It can, it can, it can hold out. And thus, it begins promoting the line of peaceful coexistence, a means of sort of securing diplomatically friendly or at least tolerable relations with Washington, relations that, of course, do go spectacularly sour at certain points, like the Cuban Missile Crisis. But nonetheless, this was the fundamental thrust. Meanwhile, China was surrounded on all sides. Uh, the Korean Peninsula, Japan, Taiwan, Vietnam, Tibet, no matter where you look on the frontier of China, and there are parallels to today, you look at the frontier of China and China sees itself encircled. And at the same time, its economy is catastrophically underdeveloped and must be developed at a breathtaking pace, damn the human consequences, uh, in order to secure its political foot footing. And this determines the national perspective of Mao versus the national perspective of the Soviet bureaucracy. They're both Stalinist in my argument, but they have different national interests. And to sort of round out the argument, looking to the Soviet Union can secure allies by loans and trade and all sorts of other things that it has an economic capacity to, to lend. And thus communist parties loyal to the Soviet Union, like the PKP ultimately, saw through ties with the Soviet Union a means of funding regimes in their country that would develop national industry. That was this perspective of the PKP. Ferdinand Marcos will develop national industry with support from the Soviet Union. But, but China, meanwhile, couldn't afford such loans. It could not afford such sort of relations in the mid-1960s. But what it did offer was a political perspective of armed guerrilla struggles in a time of extraordinary upheaval. Uh, Vietnam, etc. And thus, there was a section of youth in the Philippines looking to carry out radical means of social change who were drawn to the perspective of Maoism. And that, that perspective of, of protracted people's war became the armies that fueled the interests of Nino Aquino and company. While the PKP allied with Marcos, the CPP allied with Aquino and helped him in his attempt to take power. Before we went to the CPP, you also have written about Marcos leveraging the PKP uh, yes. to reach out to the Soviet Union. And, and for me, because when I was speculating about where would Marcos Jr., the son, go, I said, you know, he'll be kind of multi-vector like his father, right? He'll try yes. to be nice to the others, but keep the American insurance there. And I see more or less that's what's happening, right? I think that's just kind of a Marcosian instinct of approaching foreign policy. And some would argue it's quite dynamic at least compared to some of the more stagnant versions or crazy versions we had. But can you tell us a, li a little bit about that? What was this Marcos PKP? Why would he want to reach out to the Soviet Union? Wouldn't that risk his relationship with the United States? What game was he playing there? He was playing a game and he was doing it as secretly as he could. Um, he uh, obviously secured the loyalty of the United States. 
Um, and for those who haven't read it, it's an old book, but it remains wonderful. Uh, Renan Bonner's Waltzing with a Dictator is the, is the story of America's relations with Marcos told from the vantage point of the United States. Right. And it's a, it's a savage indictment of the administrations, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, for their culpability in ensuring and stabilizing the dictatorial regime of Marcos. Um, so Democrat and Republican alike. But despite this sort of, and let's point out also that America's sort of ties to Marcos were connected to the fact that they saw Marcos ensuring uh, their basis, which was the paramount calculation geopolitically for the United States. Subic and Clark, et cetera, were, uh, were decisive in their calculations. Uh, for the biggest war overseas American basis. I mean, biggest overseas American basis. Yes. I, yeah. And I mean, the, the bombs that were dropped on Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam and so on, so many of them flew from Clark and from Subic. Uh, and, you know, they cycled the servicemen through and it was the recreational center and all of the monstrosities that that entailed. So, yeah, this was this was the heart of, uh, of American empire. And that was that was Marcus's calculation. But, and this comes to your question, at the same time, there was a growing sense in the capitalist class in the Philippines that the Philippines' imbalanced trade relations on the global scale, skewed extraordinarily to the United States, was now a um, a hamper on the Philippines' economic growth. Uh, the Laurel Langley Laurel Langley Agreement and other such things were, in the end. Uh, which secured sort of parity agreement and so on with the United States, tied the Philippines to the U.S. market, tied the Philippines to U.S. investment at a time when the U.S. share of the world economy was declining. Uh, recall that in August of 71, uh, Nixon ends the Bretton Woods Agreement and dollar-gold convertibility. It was the political expression of declining U.S. economic hegemony. And there was a section of the Filipino capitalist class that said, we cannot, we don't want to break free of the Americans. We like our relations with them, but we need to sort of rebalance. Um, and Marcos represented that rebalancing moment. Diversity. And it was rebalancing at the heart of the Cold War. That's, that's I think, the final point. And he used the PKP, who had supported him in 1965 for president, to carry out informal diplomacy with the Soviet Union. They traveled to Moscow, supported by the government. Uh, he arranged uh, negotiating teams to go there of government uh, bureaucrats, of ex-generals, uh, and the Soviet Union fully supported this. As Marcos was becoming increasingly dictatorial, threatening to impose martial law, the Soviet Union was gung-ho about Marcos. Uh, they opened up the Patrice Lumumba University, which was supposed to sort of be the, the training gown for young revolutionaries. Uh, and it was the, the daughter of uh, ex-military figure and witch hunter Carmelo Barbero, who wound up going to uh, attend P P Patrice Lumumba University. They were facilitating Marcos, and Marcos was in turn seeking relations with the Soviet Union. And now about the other side, you talk about Ninoy and the CPP. Where does that drama go? I mean, it's an interesting. And, and how 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 did we end up with a situation whereby no longer anyone is talking about PKP, right? I mean, CPP is very much still part of our political landscape, even if Joma is no longer there. But yes. PKP just drops off from the radar, right? What's going on there? 
Well, that, that's the final that's the final step in the PKP story before we get to the CPP story. Right. The PKP, in some ways, you could argue perversely, wins in 1972 in a terrible, terrible, terrible way uh, by means of the worst one of the worst political betrayals in Philippine history. The PKP backed Ferdinand Marcos' imposition of martial law. They carried out bombings throughout Metro Manila in 1970, 71, and 72, that Marcos blamed the CPP for. The CPP did not carry out these bombings. It was Marcos's allies in the PKP. And we know that because the PKP wrote about it in their own publications. Prior to my scholarship, nobody had read the newspapers of the PKP and said, holy shit, they're doing the bombings themselves. Um, and they were. The P and they were working with the Marcos's military to do this. Marcos staged the pretext for his own dictatorship. And when Marcos imposed dictatorship, the allies of the PKP in the Marcos cabinet ghost wrote Marcos's documents justifying martial law, one that was published in 71, shortly before martial law, called Today's Revolution Democracy, claimed that Marcos was carrying out martial law or would carry out martial law to crack down on the oligarchs and, and specifically cited Lenin to justify this. Uh, and so put in the mouth of Ferdinand Marcos the words of Lenin to justify military dictatorship. And when Marcos had imposed martial law, the PKP staged a Congress in early 1973 that announced its support for the military dictatorship. There were a number of young members of the PKP who did not like this. They didn't join a communist party to support martial law. And when they opposed it, the PKP leadership had them murdered. About the numbers are hard to come by, but somewhere from 50 to 70 people is the estimate that I've seen, were killed by the PKP in order to support martial law. And by 1974, they had officially endorsed the Marcos government uh, and entered into his cabinet. It was a success down the line from their vantage point. Uh, they were present to welcome Nicolae Susescu from Romania when he visited the country uh, as official representatives of the Marcos government. And yet, and here's the answer to your question, why does the PKP disappear? That was an extraordinary betrayal. It was a betrayal of everything that the Communist Party claimed to represent. And I think the PKP lost all credibility. Uh, do we have a precedence or parallel for this in other parts of the post-colonial world of them being absorbed into essentially a kind of a new regime and essentially dropping off? I mean, I, I'm just suddenly made me think like this is... In, this is this is quite it, something, right? It is quite something. It is, in its precise details, unparalleled. Um, but in its overall thrust, it is not. Even as an example that we just touched on, Sukarno yeah. was engaged in what he called guided democracy, right. which yeah, was exactly. an authoritarian or autocratic regime. It was not the dictatorship that followed under Suharto, which was a bloody, brutal dictatorship. But nonetheless, this was not a democratic government. And it, it was fundamentally propped up by the PKI. The Sukarno relied on the PKI to an extraordinary extent to maintain his hold on power and his credibility up until the slaughter of the PKI in 65, 66. They were not so a junior was, partner. Yeah, they were not the junior partner. I see what you're saying. Yeah, because immediately PKI and Sukarno relationship was the closest I could think about right off the bat, right? Now, going to the other side, though, what's going on with the Communist Party of the Philippines? Obviously, what happened with the other side gives them an opening to be the genuine vanguard, right? For progressive, right. or at least that's the thinking, right? So in 1965, 
Joe Masison, still a member of the executive committee of the uh, the PKP, organized the support for Marcos. Uh, it was Sison who instructed the KM to vote for Marcos. It was Sison who instructed Laopiang Mangagawa and Masaka to vote for Marcos. Sison was at the, he was the organizer of so-called left-wing support for Marcos in 1965, which is an extraordinary thing, something that Sison will, uh, would never acknowledge throughout his entire life. But the documents are clear from his own writing, what he did. Um, but tensions emerged within the PKP shortly after this. The PKP had organized support for Marcos on the basis of the claim that Marcos would keep the Philippines out of Vietnam. Uh, America's war in Vietnam, which really was launched in its full brutality in March of 1965, America sought sort of multilateral support, you know, the, the coalition of the willing or whatever, to, to justify its war in Vietnam. And among the forces that they approached were Macapagal. And Macapagal pledged that he would send Filipino troops to Vietnam. Um, but Macapagal was resoundingly defeated in the 1965 election. And Marcos claimed, with the support of the PKP, that he would keep the Philippines out of Vietnam. Uh, shortly after being elected, Marcos said, well, uh, I've decided I'm going to send troops. And he sent Filcag the uh, Philippine Civic Action Group, headed by Fidel V. Ramos. Uh, and the opposition to this among youth was overwhelming. And Sison was kind of a leading representative of the youth wing of the party. And for a very long time, Sison sought to contain the youth. He wasn't leading their protests. He was, in fact, preventing their protests. He was trying to preserve relations with Marcos. By, by October 1966, however, there was a massive protest on October 24 outside the Manila Hotel that was brutally suppressed by the police when Johnson was visiting the Philippines as part of the Manila summit. And uh, it was this that was sort of the turning point in the breakup of the PKP. Uh, the youth movement that Sison was seeking to control was getting out of control. And as he put himself at the head of the youth movement, he was being torn away from the section of the PKP, which was oriented towards Marcos, uh, the members of his cabinet, and so on. Uh, figures of subsequent political prominence like Ruben Torres. And it was this that tore apart the PKP. And in April of 1967, Sison was kicked out of the party, not because he raised principled political objections to the PKP, but more fundamentally because he was heading a section of the party that was unruly and op opposing Marcos and the party would have nothing to do with it. They wanted to preserve their relations with Marcos. So Sison went around looking for a new ally and ultimately found one in the figure of Ninoy Aquino. And it was Ninoy Aquino who arranged for Sison to meet with uh, Bernabe Buscaino, who became Commander Dante and the head of the NPA in late 1968 and early 1969. And it was thus with a very small cohort that the CPP was founded. To be clear, in the period of 1969 to 1972, the PKP was a much larger party. The CPP's influence dwarfed that of the PKP precisely because the CPP articulated with its radical Maoist rhetoric the sentiment of youths and workers who were coming into struggle. And thus, as the first quarter storm arrived in 1970, all of these protests in Manila, the party grew, and it grew a lot. And the PKP, meanwhile, which was trying to preserve relations with Marcos, was looking increasingly isolated. Uh, the aspiration of Sison and the CPP was to assist Nino Aquino in taking power and to form a coalition government with him. And they failed in this. 
and it was thus when Aquino was arrested with the imposition of martial law, and the rest of the Philippine elite endorsed martial law. Many of the figures who claimed later to be forces of democracy, uh, figures like uh, Salvador Lorel or Justado Macapagal, uh, all of them supported Marcos's imposition of martial law immediately and declared their support, saying that it would, if he used it properly, it was for the good of the country. And the party was incredibly isolated. And thus, the party wound up this sort of armed movement in the countryside, even though the overwhelming base of its enthusiasm from 70 to 72 was based in the city of Manila in particular. And they redirected all of the uh, unrest in Manila into the countryside. And it was for that reason, I argue, that there was, uh, there was quiet in Manila after Marcos imposed martial law. No protests, no demonstrations. The CPP told everyone to go to the countryside. Frontline shifted. Yeah, it and did. Maui's way, right? Surround the cities. I mean, the and they've been doing yeah, yeah. Um, now obviously, at some point, the communist part of the Philippines. Now, Ninoy, of course, is pushed to exile and all of that, building his own kind of a, uh, uh, you know, now he has a no new persona, arc of redemption. But as far as the communists were concerned, they were building a massive, massive presence, right? I mean, they were, they were, they were becoming really a major force, uh, so much so that I, I think definitely that influenced the Reagan administration calculus, right? I mean, yes. perhaps a large part of not dropping Marcos was because of the fear of what will come instead of Marcos, right? Which immediately, of course, provided the room for the Corazon Aquino block to come in and say, hey, we are the kind of a third force in a, in a classic Tony Blair style of the third force, right? Can we talk about how how did they become so powerful in the peripheries of this country? Is it is it as they say like Marcos was the best recruitment strategy for them because of the you know violence of the Mindanao War, violence visited upon the rest of the country because of the failures of the economy? What was good? How did they become such a powerful military force? And then how did they just you know some would say um you know from the jaws of victory right? Yes. <laughs> they gave up at that yeah. Can you explain the drama? Because you talk about your book is a drama of dictatorship, right? But it's also the drama of the other side not making the most out of the failing of the dictatorship, right? It is It is true. And there is an element of truth to the formulation that Marcos was the best recruiter for the MPA. Not Marcos generally, but the martial law dictatorship. I mean, it's important to remember that Marcos had a political career before he became the dictator. But Marcos, the dictator, was a tremendous recruiter for the MPA, precisely because of how hated his regime was. Um, and it wasn't just the personality of Marcos and Imelda and their excesses that had a role, but it was uh, the violence and brutality of the dictatorship. 70,000 people arrested without war and 35,000 people subjected to torture, thousands salvaged and executed. Uh, it was, there, there were immense human suffering created by this regime. And on top of that, there was the absence of an alternative political outlet. Um, that was, I think, the crucial aspect of this. But it wasn't immediate. It was not as if Marcos imposed martial law in 1972 and suddenly the NPA exploded. It did not. Um, the NPA grew somewhat in October 1972 because some of the legal forces in Manila joined the NPA. They had been members of the CPP in the city, but they moved to the countryside. But that was just a sort of a titration, a rebalancing. The real growth in the party comes from about 78 to about 85. Um, this transforms it into 
uh, an organization with such extraordinary influence, um, uh, mass base, and so on in this period without parallel. It is a period that coincides, um, uh, but not is not causal. It's a coincidence. But it coincides with the time that Joma Sison was in prison. Uh, Joma Sison was not at the head of the Communist Party during the period of the Communist Party's greatest influence. The cause, I would argue, of the Communist Party's profound growth numerically from 78 to 85 was the fact that the isolated and despairing bourgeois opposition to Marcos was coming back on the stage with the failure of the interim Batas and Pambansa election of 1978 through to the ouster of Marcos in 1986. Sections of the capitalist class that had been conspiring against Marcos in 1970, 1971, and 1972 began to come back into action. They were largely silent. In fact, they supported the dictator, many of them, from 72 to 78. But by 78, they were frustrated. The dictatorship had served its purpose, and it was time for Marcos to, you know, someone else should be in Malacanian. Uh, and as a result, uh, these forces began to ally themselves with the CPPNPA. And it was this that channeled funding, that channeled support. And this took all sorts of forms. It took the form of an immense growth of support from the church, uh, both Catholic and Protestant. There were wings of the church that, that brought a great deal of enthusiasm behind the CPP. And it transformed the CPP to a certain extent. Uh, the, the markings of its earlier sort of humanist atheism were effectively eradicated uh, in place of the church militant. Um, but it also brought them the support of a great deal of the sort of leading capitalist figures. Uh, their printing budget expanded, their ability to produce propaganda, uh, their network of contacts internationally expanded. And it was this more than anything else, not so much Marcos the best recruiter, that caused the explosion of growth in the CPP. But with that explosion of growth came contradiction. Many of those who were joining the CPP at this point had slightly different visions from the original leadership of the CPP. Absorption the, capacity problem, I mean, the classic. Yes, know. yes, exactly. This can easily be understood in the language of political science. Um, and uh, it, it's it's a it's a real problem, and the the party proved capacious, but it also proved fragmentary. Um, and the fragmentary moment, uh, th there were two things that I think sort of underpin this, that, that sort of reveal just how fragmentary the party was, the pressures that were being brought to bear on the party. One were the one of the worst crimes in the party's history, the purges, um, where the party carried out not one but multiple purges, witch hunts internally of alleged deep penetration agents within the party from about 1980 to about 1990, the space of an entire decade, Marcos and Aquino, in multiple locations. It's not just Mindanao, it's Southern Tagalog as well. It's uh, the Samar region, multiple geographic locations, multiple leaders, multiple time periods, carried out purges that saw the execution of over a thousand cater within the party, buried in what was groups. going on there? Was it a certain psychological dynamic going on there, aside from the political dynamic? Like, what there was bigger yeah. point? Yeah, I so, mean, I mean read uh, accounts of some people who you know kind of survived this very, you know, harrowing situation. 
So Suffer Thy Comrades by Bobby Francis Garcia gives a, a really good psychological explanation for this, and I recommend it. Uh, but I think the psychological explanation is partial. It's necessary, but it is not sufficient. Um, there is also the social aspect, which of course is my, my focus. Um, and it expressed a couple tendencies within the party. It was the attempt by rival tendencies within the party to assert leadership by bloodshed. Among them, Joma Sison by 1985-86. And it was bound up with disputes over how the party should conduct its work, urban work versus rural work, how close an alliance with the bourgeoisie, what section of the bourgeoisie to ally with, whose fault it is that they did not get on board with the Aquino election campaign in 1986, and fundamentally, the liquidation of the Soviet Union and the restoration of capitalism in China, pressures that were manifesting themselves by the late 1980s. All of these things found expression in this sort of internal bloodbath. That's the first sort of fragmentation of the CPP. But the second fragmentation of the CPP is a specific moment. It is the decision to boycott the 1986 election, um, which the party subsequently assessed as like the worst mistake in their history. I disagree, it's not. Um, but that's their conception. The reason they have argued it's the worst mistake in their history is because for them, there is nothing more important than the ties with a successful sort of bourgeois democratic government. And the failure to campaign for Aquino in February 1986 is what kept them out of her cabinet. Yeah. And that for them is the most devastating of all of their mistakes. Uh, they, the calculation on both sides, and there was a dispute, was how can we best secure an alliance with the middle class? And one section of the party, represented by Saturo Campo and others, argued that uh, if we campaign for Aquino, the middle class want to support Aquino. If we campaign for Aquino, we will win the support of the middle class. At the level of just sort of realpolitik, I think this was the, the, the better answer. Certainly it proved to be the correct answer. I don't think it's a principled answer. I think that the workers should have been independent. But certainly, if you were looking to secure the support of the middle class, you campaign for Corey. But there was another, and it proved dominant, faction in the party that argued that the middle that Marcos will inevitably remain in power. Corey will be defeated. It is impossible to end the dictatorship by means of elections. Marcos won't let it happen. Therefore, if we say the election is fraudulent and we should boycott it. Once the middle class are disillusioned, they will see that we were right and they will come to support us. Both sides in this dispute were arguing for the support of the middle class. Neither of them were trying to be sort of preserve the independence of workers. But one of them said, we'll get the support of the middle class by voting for Corey. And the other said, we'll get the independence, the support of the middle class by boycotting. The boycott wing won out. And it was devastating. It, the party was in when, when the people power took place and, and the left, that is to say, the CPP influenced organizations, Bayan in particular, were absent to an extraordinary degree, led nothing. Uh, and to the extent that Bayan tried to do anything, it was to get in touch with Ramos and Enrile. Uh, the party was shattered by this and never fully recovered. Shall we do a counterfactual? What if they went ahead and joined the... I mean, essentially wagered, right? Did the yes. way that's a the, that is a fascinating counterfactual. Like Rosa Luxembourg, you know, like make yeah. their relation happen. Don't wait for it to come. Yeah, I the party had tremendous influence. Yeah. 
if it had as early as the announcement of the snap election sort of brought its full weight behind the candidate of Cory Aquino. Um, and Cory had accepted that support. And there was reluctance on the party of part of Cory in particular because to the accept American support from Biden. She, she was she was keeping them at arm's length. Yeah. But let's assume two counterfactuals. One, the party brings its support behind Cory, and two, Cory accepts it. Yeah. They would have been able to sort of, there would have been a lot of buy-in leadership at EDSA. It would have been very prominent. We know that from the history of these organizations. They are exceptionally capable at sort of corralling the energy of the streets. They thus, Corey would have been beholden to them. She would have been obligated to bring some of them into her cabinet. But she would also, I think, tactically have felt the need to bring in Ramos and Enrile into her cabinet as well. What the outcome of such a coalition would have been is difficult to say. But in the in the end, the CPP was left out. And when Mark, when when Cison did try to establish relations with Corey, and he did, when Cison was released from prison, he flashes the Laban sign. He meets with Gringo Honasan, hailing Gringo Honasan as a progressive figure. He meets with Corey Aquino and has discussions with her by by Labor Day, May Day, nineteen eighty six. Uh, the KMU is staging a rally at Luneta Plaza in front of Cory Aquino. And on the stage, there are three figures. This is from Cison's own account. There are three figures standing on stage at Luneta Plaza, Cory Aquino, Joma Cison, and Fidel Ramos. And the Philippine Constabulary Band, or the Philippine Military Band, played the Internationale. Bangon sa pagkakabusabos, etc. You know, the Filipino version of the, the hymn of the proletariat. And they carried a hammer and sickle towards stage. I mean, the 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 iconography of this, the sort of political alignment that occurs in mid-1986 is stunning. Unity. But we recall, yeah, I'm sorry. But Marco Jr. says unity. This is what we need. Unity. <laughs> well, the thing is similar things. Latin American style, Peronismo, bring everyone on the stage, right? This is interesting because I think that this is this terrible perverse phenomena is at the heart of red tagging. And let's be clear, red tagging is real. Uh, horrible. It's horrible. It's a murderous yeah. phenomenon that, that labels crazy. people for their political convictions. You have the legal right to be a communist in the Philippines, and yet you're now labeled a terrorist. And if you're not a communist, you're labeled a communist and by derivation a terrorist. And the cycle of sort of labeling people who have any dissenting opinion is something that can be subjected to state violence, repression, and possibly even murder is one of the most horrifying things in Philippine politics and should be denounced at every turn. But what are the social roots of red tagging? Why does the bourgeoisie resort to this, the, the elite? And in particular, it's the elite in office. And I think an aspect of this is the fact that the CPP has, through various organizations that follow its political line, established relations with political candidates of every stripe in the elite since 1986. They, they formed relations with Cory Aquino, uh, for example. They formed relations with Gloria Macapagal-Arroyo, for example, and enthusiastically supported her in 2001. Subsequently, they denounced her as a fascist. They uh, denounced, they supported Manny Villar, uh, another example. They initially supported Grace Paul before they supported Rodrigo Duterte. The function of red tagging, and Duterte certainly didn't invent it. Uh, Arroyo was engaged in red tagging, for example, against the very people who had supported her. The function of red tagging is to attempt to drive a wedge between the left and your 
their elite opponents by tarnishing the left with this label, by putting them under the, the burden of murder, you make it difficult for their your elite rivals to ally with them. And you know that these forces, Bayan and company and so on, that you are now uh, slandering in this fashion, uh, you know they're a significant social force. And by red tagging them, you sort of inhibit their movement politically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, that, I mean, that was one of the functions of it in this most recent election. It made it more difficult for Lenny Robredo to maneuver, for example. Um, and I think that's the key function. It's why there's so much hypocrisy, because all of the red taggers were allied with Rodrigo Duterte is the peak criminal in this, you know, the crime of red tagging. He was intimately allied with the CPP. The forces that he's red tagging were members of his cabinet. And yet he was instrumental in creating an apparatus of murder and turning it on them. Uh, the word balimbing doesn't apply here. This is uh, yeah. it, it is a criminal degree of sort of savagery. Um, but that's the function of red tagging. It has a social function. I mean, what I like about this conversation is it just makes us realize there's so much more that we can talk about. But I want to try to this wrap up this podcast and uh, just hopefully we have more discussion. I'm sure there's more to come and looking forward to more panel discussion about your book and other interesting work on this as Marcus Jr. takes over. Well, two things I want to ask here. First of all, what is your impression of Marcos Jr.? Is there anything that surprised you or what are the, what are the things that surprised you and what are the things that hasn't haven't surprised you? And at the same time, there's another left that we're not talking about, right? You can call them sock them, the rejectionists, you know, uh, you know, one of them, of course, one of the progressive ones made it to the Senate and was kind of passed down the baton by Lenny Robredo, although I'm not seeing as much support for her as they should be if she's really indeed the de facto leader of the opposition. Um, can we talk about these two things? Marcos Jr., your impressions, and where do you think things are going to head based on your understanding of the structures, the social base, everything, the impersonal forces shaping Philippine politics? And then probably we can end on this note. What about the other left, right? The, let's just call it Risa Hontiveros kind of progressive left, soft them left. Let's start with Marcos Jr. It's a good question. Uh, Marcos Jr. himself surprised me, you know, taking the long vantage point. He didn't surprise me on election day, but, you know, two years before. Good surprise? Uh, you mean good surprise? I mean, relatively. No, no, I mean, I'm shocked that he was elected president. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I wasn't shocked on election day. It was in the cards. You could see it over the course of the election campaign. But if you had, if you had asked me when he was campaigning for senator in 2010, if Bong Bong Marcos was likely to become president, I would have said no. Yeah, of course. Not for two reasons. One, he's an exceptionally limited man, personally. Like, at a personal level, we're talking about a college dropout, business school dropout, a man who's been pampered through his entire life. And the real skill set that he has is sort of using the connections that he has in a predatory fashion. Uh, he was instrumental in the theft his parents carried out in the late in the late stages of the dictatorship. He was governor of Ilocos Norte under the auspices of the dictatorship. Um, and he was the sort of face of the military repressive wing of Marcos on the eve of people power. Um, he doesn't, he's not a good public speaker, unlike his father. Uh, he avoided debates to cover this up. It's particularly noticeable when he tries to speak in a Philippine language. Uh, it's actually kind of embarrassing and cringeworthy to watch. So he's not a particularly personally viable candidate. And so what does he do? He runs as Marcos. He doesn't run as his own man. He doesn't run as a, you know, 
you know, I'm proud of my father. There were certain things about his dictatorship that I would not have done or something like that. An attempt to distance himself from his father without, you know, turning on the family name entirely. And then running a campaign as, but I am not my father. I am my own man and I have a new vision for the Filipino people. I'm not trying to write his campaign speech, but he could have done something like that and he did not. Instead, he ran entirely as Marcos Jr. You know, Jr. was, that was his platform. Marshall, Marshall Law was a golden tragedy, tragedy than than as farce, right? I mean, yes, exactly. He and he he is certainly the farce, but let's not use farce lightly. The farce contains with it immense threat, so that that is in some ways surprising, and it represents precisely how eroded the institution of democracy has become, not just in the Philippines but globally. Uh, the election of Marcos is of global significance. And the second thing about Marcos that I would say surprised me is the rapidity of his turn away from Duterte's foreign policy. Um, there had been speculation, fueled by Marcos himself, um, that Marcos would continue this sort of rebalancing that Duterte had been engaged in. Um, and I mean, I think there, are, um, this is, this moves into new turf that we can cover in another discussion, but there are signs of sort of conflict within sort of the Malacanang itself and the need to secure control over the military and stabilize your own hold on power. But at any rate, the sort of bringing back to the Fort Edka, tying the Philippines into the fate of the struggle over Taiwan and effectively world war, uh, these things not in themselves surprising, but the rapidity of them is breathtaking. So that's the answer to your first question. Um, let's go to the real question. I think this is really what I wanted to talk about, to be honest, right? Yeah. The other left. The other left. Is that in some ways the yes. more viable left? I mean, Riza Antiveros has won multiple times, a very difficult field, right? I mean, winning the Senate is no joke in the Philippines if you are. It is not. It is, right? it is an impressive achievement. Um, and that's certainly true. Uh, but let's be honest, she's effectively liberal party now. I mean, the trajectory of Akbayan, and here's the here's the criticism. The trajectory of Akbayan has been, I was recently, anecdote, I was recently in an archive in Cornell where I was going through old election paraphernalia and I found the 2004 election paraphernalia and there was the folder for Gloria Macapagal Arroyo and there was the folder for FPJ, but there was also the folder for um, uh, Bayan Muna and Akbayan. And the Akbayan election paraphernalia was like Che Guevara stickers and stuff. It was an attempt to depict Akbayan as this more militant left. I think it was already a dwindling image by 2004. But the real turning point was uh, the marriage with the Noinoy Aquino cabinet in 2010. Uh, that was instrumental, I think, in the success of Risa Monteveros and of Akbayan more generally, but it also represented the, the to a significant extent, the death of the pretension to be genuinely left. Um, certainly there are issues above all, and I will not downplay this, the question of women's rights, where there is still a progressive voice being articulated. But as an overall program, the perspective of Akbayan uh, has moved from what presented itself as a legal revolutionary alternative to the, the, the structures of the, the CPP to a progressive reformist organization to effectively 
the, the progressive face of the liberal party. Now, that doesn't address more broadly the question of the left. That's just to come to your sort of, it's a great success. It is electorally a success. Mm -hmm. But programmatically, it represents sort of a dissolution of everything that Akbayam claimed it was attempting to do. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I mean, of course, I mean, Walden Belly has his own take on this issue. We can talk about also what Caliodi and Walden were trying to do in the last elections. Exactly. The, the thing is, I mean, this is just, I'm, I'm just here trying the arguments. No, I mean, the argument would be in a, well, one argument will be, isn't the Philippines sociologically more right than left? Kind of like Reagan's America. The Philippines has its own version of Reagan's America. That, I mean, you may disagree with that, but, you know, you would say a median Filipino voter tends to be far less to the left than the right. I mean, we can look at, for instance, the Asia barometer when people were asked about social redistribution and, and Philippines was kind of a whole league of its own. Like if you look at the numbers in Cambodia, in Singapore, in Malaysia, the idea of state intervention for social justice was much more uh, found a much more receptive crowd. So, I mean, you can look at look at a lot of indicators when it were illiberalism and conservatism and, and you know, skepticism of progr progressive values tends to be very strong. So the argument would be, um, it's it, it's almost inevitable to kind of attach yourself more to at best at liberals if you want to stand a chance of winning in a very trapple style politics or electoral. You get what I'm saying? Now, now I'm talking about yes. politics here. I, I hate to do this, but so I, I, no, no, it's it's a legitimate right? question. I have two points that I want to make. Uh, the final oh, one I is guess. sort of sort of the underlying continuity of what constitutes the left in the Philippines, and I'll get to that in a minute. But Let's take your, your framing, which is if you want to win elections under these conditions, this is the thing you need to do. I think you're right. I think if your goal is to secure a seat, um, particularly a seat in the Senate, for God's sake, uh, that requires uh, adapting your political line substantially to the status quo and to existing political parties if that is your aspiration. That is not, however, traditionally, the, the aspiration of Marxism, the aspiration of the left. The aspiration of the left is the building of an independent movement of the working class that is conscious of its own interests. Now, this uses electoral politics, but its goal is not fundamentally the securing of seats. The elections are means to another end. This doesn't mean you don't want to win the seat, you do, but that's not the end goal. You, would, you do not sell out the question of principles to the securing of a seat. And if it means that your election, you wind up with 10,000 votes instead of 2 million votes, those are 10,000 class conscious votes. Those are 10,000 votes that are dedicated to the political program that you clearly articulated, that you did not water down. And in the next election, it's 15,000. And it grows by means that are not merely electoral. It is the commitment to a political program dedicated to the interests of workers and not an alliance with the capitalist class that is fundamentally the left. And effectively, the argument, the counter argument that you're making is if you want to be elected, you have to be not left. Maybe you're right, but maybe to be genuinely left means my fundamental goal isn't to be elected. My fundamental goal is to build an independent movement of the working class. And in that case, these elections are a means to the education of the working class. To further elaborate on this, you made the point that in polls, surveys reveal that the Philippine population is in some ways 
of a more traditionally right character. Some of its issues on social politics and so on are of what we would regard as a, is not left-leaning. I think there's truth to that. But I think that polls, electoral surveys are kind of a chasing after shadows. It's chasing after the tail end of where people's consciousness has been rather than what their objective interests are. This is, this is the Marxist conception most clearly articulated by Lenin in his work, What is to be Done, which is to say it isn't what workers imagine their interests are on a particular day that is decisive. They may imagine their interests are best served by voting for Rodrigo Duterte and be genuinely convinced of that, but that is not their objective interest even if they believe it to be so. Their objective interest is for a candidate who will genuinely fight for socialist change, not a fascistic candidate who mouths the slogans of socialism occasionally and then mobilizes death squads. And the securing of leadership in the working class doesn't rest in saying what it is that the workers think they want to hear right now, but in saying what is the objective interest of workers, that they have an interest antithetical to the owners of the factories, that they don't have an, an, a common national interest, but they have a common interest with workers in other countries, and that that requires a socialist program. That's the perspective of Marxism and of the left. And that the goal of that it articulates the objective interests of workers, even when workers themselves are not conscious of it. And the extraordinary thing historically is that people's consciousness tends to, in moments of upheaval, rapidly catch up to their objective circumstances. Their minds change very quickly uh, with startling rapidity. And the party that has positioned itself with a program that is principled will secure leadership in that change. So that would be the left alternative. Yeah. Uh, I know I've been talking on, but let me make a final point. As yeah, you're asking about... yeah, I want to say something, but please go ahead. Yeah, sure. You want to go first? No, no, no. I mean, there, what I'm trying to say here is, um, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm, I'm not left enough or whatever you want to say. But for me, like reading the literature, right, from a political science point of view, like the idea that pressure from below, reform from above, that kind of a synchronized approach to pushing the envelope may work. I mean, the idea that you may have to make some compromises to get some people in the state, in the bureaucratic structure, but that should not necessarily take away from building movement from below to put pressure on that very state and solve your folks who got into the state and may lose their lose their way. You get what I'm saying? Like you yes. can have this kind of you know sandwiching effect and push the envelope further. I mean, maybe this sounds uh, not progressive enough. It may sound too real politic, or may not even sound feasible. But it is a kind of a reformist slash over long term revolutionary approach that many people in very different difficult circumstances would talk about. I heard this argument in some of the more Middle Eastern countries, in some parts of Latin America. So, I mean, I'm coming from a very comparative perspective, and I'm under, and my feeling is maybe that's the way for the Philippines, or maybe not. I mean, I'm, I'm just throwing the idea there. No, I mean, what we are fundamentally, you, you hit on it. We are fundamentally talking about the difference between reform and revolution. Um, and, and then there's the conflicting definitions over what constitutes left. Is sort of progressive reformist politics left, or is revolutionary politics left, or are they both left? But the fundamental distinction that we're drawing, the term left is squishy. Uh, but I'm presenting a Marxist left, you know, or expansive, let's say. I'm presenting a Marxist perspective, which is revolutionary. Um, it does not re reject reform, but reform is a means to, fighting for reforms is a means for developing revolutionary consciousness. That's the Marxist conception. 
And as such, any alliance with the top to sort of carry out these reforms dilutes the consciousness of the working class, instructs them to seek for their own interests through representatives who are antithetical to them. And in the end, yes, you may secure reforms in a period of economic boom in particular. You know, during the, the upswing of the capitalist market cycle, it is possible that by such methods, you will secure meaningful reforms. And then the bust cycle comes along and all of those reforms are stripped away and something worse is put in its place. Um, and that's the sort of the cycle, the logic of the, the illusions in reform. And the revolutionary counterpoint, the, the revolutionary left counterpoint is that this entire cycle of boom and bust, the entire cycle of exploitation and impoverishment is bound up with capitalism. And that the thrust of politics has to be the overthrow of capitalism and the creation of socialism. And you can't get there by collaborating with the capitalists in the first place. That sounds like a very, uh, very much criticism of PT in, in Brazil, right? Like, it, yes, yes, it is. On Lula, right? That's precisely where they went wrong, right? Yes. They got absorbed by the system and they settled on just stopgap measures. I mean, Bolsa uh, Familia, okay, it has this point, but that's also precisely what eventually ate them, right? And gave uh, gave the chance to Bolsonaro to come in. And now let's say good luck with Lula, how to do it. I mean, I'm just saying like Hold this. That, that is exactly it. Very yes. much applicable to Brazil or has been applied to Brazil. It's applied to a great many places, but Brazil is a, is a paramount example of exactly what I'm talking about. Thank you very much. This was this was really. I mean, I, I can I can see that you can see that I can see, I and mean, we can go on in this. You know? This, yeah, because... this has been a terrific conversation. Let me make one final point, if Please, I may. Go ahead, and then let's talk about your book. Please make your you know. Go yeah, sure, sure, right? sure. So I mean, you asked the question about the sort of non-CPP left, and I I specifically went after Akbayan, which may be unfair, but you mentioned Risa Honteveros and the success of her becoming senator, so it seemed appropriate. But I'd like to make a broader point. There is, for all their differences, and the differences are very real, um, and at times have even been brutally hostile to each other. For all the differences within the Philippine left, there is an underlying continuity. And that underlying continuity is nationalism. Mm. In one form or another, uh, the left in the Philippines has taken a nationalist approach. And thus, the argument has consistently been the tasks that they are engaged in, whether through reform or revolution, are of a national character. And, and thus not socialist, but national and democratic. And what national democracy means is quite expansive, including land reform and so on, right. but fundamentally not yet socialist. And while I don't think all of these organizations are Stalinist, it shares that Stalinist conception of a two-stage revolution and an alliance with a capitalist class. That's the underpinning conception of all of these organizations. And what I'm advocating in my scholarship and my scholarship is as you can see starkly political right and this is why normative. Many people. Normative, yeah yeah it uh is for the rehabilitation of what i'm calling genuine marxism the marxism that defended the russian revolution against stalinism the marxism of trotskyism um and i'm encouraging filipinos to look into it for themselves read about it it's something that they've been denied by a great many years of falsification. My book presents that perspective in a particular window. One second, think... one second, Joseph. Sorry, I, I, I'm going to squeeze out a little bit more out of you before. We... <laughs> sorry about that. It's your fault. Oh, right? uh, you know me. We're too high for you guys. I want to squeeze two things. Um, first of all, of course, um, as you may know, 
um i mean imelda marcus is now trending on twitter right um and you, you know the context right uh i don't want to say let's preempted but i know the the crux of your book that you'll discuss shortly of course and plug in is you know don't overstate the agency of particular actors always appreciate the social yes. space the structure very classic historian classic marxist i would even say right um but how would you i mean did imelda marcus make any difference and and in what so sense i must ask because i i did not know this was trending are you saying that she's trending on twitter for the reason that She's dead. Uh, well, the, 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 the latest one is that she's still alive and kicking according to people close to her, but we okay. know. It's possible. It's in the near future and so is in the relay. I mean, it, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, you know, we're not wishing an ill for anyone. I'm just saying, I, I just want to get your point of view as a historian. Where do you put Imelda Marcos in Philippine history? I'm considering, according to her, I mean, she's the only one who got two presidents in, right? She uh, yeah. I mean, if I were writing her biography, she is a complex and interesting person. Very complex, exactly. But ultimately repugnant. Mm -hmm. Let us be clear. We sometimes use the word complex to hide the reality that something is brutal. Her story is complex. It's interesting. It would make a hell of a story. But it is a story that is marked by rapacity and violence and theft and plunder and murder and self-aggrandizement, all of the sort of- Political success in a sense, I mean, right? I mean- a political success as the embodiment of many of the worst traits in humanity. Um, uh, vain, uh, just if one were to hold up to human society and all of its complexity and hope and beautiful and rottenness and so on, a mirror and sought out many of its worst traits, that image would resemble Imelda Marcos. I mean, I, I would have thought, I mean, had there been uh, YouTube or TikTok back in the day, I mean, forget about the Kardashians. I could imagine Imelda having a reality show and all of that. Yes. I mean, no, she would have loved it. Perception management, right? She would have loved it. She would, and she would have been very good at it. Very she, good. She, yeah. The fact that she is talented does not alter the fact that she is also guilty of immense crimes. Now let's talk about something more hopeful, which is... I mean, is there something that gives you hope? I mean, obviously, there are two ways to approach it, right? One way is like this, I don't know if if I put it like the tragic or Protestant ethic, like do the right thing regardless, right? Like we're here to do the right thing, regardless of whether we can change the world, who knows? But the other part is perhaps, you know, maybe the world can change for the better. And as far as the Philippines and our conversation is concerned, what is it with the Philippine left? Despite all the, I mean, you know it yourself, persons, despite the, horribly passionate and divisive worse than debate dynamics there i mean like yes. i mean you put two lefties together four parties will come out in this in the <laughs> so if you put two conservative philippines three come out two lefties philippines four comes out right like i mean from what i understand from you know personal experience interaction from the literature it's an extremely divided and in a way also a marginalized political force but what gives you hope about the future of the Philippine left, aside from just, you know, being a stubborn guy, which is, it is our historical duty to be a vanguard. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Like, well, I mean, tell me about it. Like, especially for viewers who are wondering, like, what are these uh, two idiots talking about for two and a half hours, right? Ano ba? Ano ba ang bag nito? Meron ba? May pag-asa ba tayo? Ano ba mangyari? Meron. Right. I, I would not, 
I do not commit myself to the ideas of left-wing politics, to the ideas of Marxism for the good of my soul. Um, I don't, if that were the case, I'd rather like buy a bottle of wine and listen to jazz and I think my soul would be equally benefited. I do it because I have hope. I am committed to these ideas precisely because I believe they're right. And I think by right, I don't just mean morally correct, but I mean politically feasible. And I think they're the only feasible means. For all the talk of realpolitik, I think that we've seen that reformist politics in the end have led us to something of a dead end. And that the alternative, that is to say something drastically new, is something that actually holds out more hope, sort of when it's in, in its uh, uh, daring to do something fundamentally different. Is there hope for the Philippines? Yes. Uh, I root that hope in the history of the Philippines, which is a proud and powerful history. Uh, and I'm a scholar of Southeast Asia, and I will not, of course, disparage the history of any country. They're all interesting. But few are as dynamic and resilient and passionate and powerful and full of revolutionary struggles and ideas as that of the Philippines. Uh, from the revolution of Bonifacio to the ideas of Rizal and Mabini, through those of Isabelo de los Reyes, through the struggles of the PKP and all of their failures, there was an enormity of mass struggle there that represents something undying and real. And that gives me tremendous enthusiasm, coupled with the fact that we are witnessing, not just in the Philippines, but globally, an upsurge in working class organization, in struggles, uh, political struggles, and so on, in a context of real crisis that spells political opportunity. And I see that as cause for hope globally, and in particular in the Philippines. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always don't want to be accused of being corny and all, but I believe it's extremely important to have this part in any proper conversation because what i hate is having this conversation about the ills of the world and then end up hanging and like okay what am i going to do next so for me if you're going to have three hour conversation with me i want to make sure anyone who's listening to us come out of this energized not only intellectually enriched or soulfully enriched but i want them to come out excited about political prospects about the fluidity out there about about the space no matter how small i mean i always say you complain about the Philippines, you have no idea how much more restrictive it is in a lot of parts of the world, right? You go to the Middle East, you go to even Latin America. My goodness, there are people there facing 10 times more struggles than us here. A horrible situation in Russia, for instance, right? I mean, just look at Navalny, what he has had to deal with. He's not a perfect person, obviously. Um, so that's what gives me hope. You know, when people ask, why do you keep on going back and talk about the Philippines? You have no idea. We still have it relatively better than 80, 90% of the post-colonial world. If, if you talk about the space yeah. political I, I agree. And I think the Philippines actually isn't particularly restrictive. Exactly. I mean, our ability to have this podcast, right? I mean, yeah, no, the Philippines has for all, for all the political failures an extraordinary freedom of speech and press and so on. The danger in the Philippines isn't that you'll be censored. You might get killed. Um, that's a real danger. The number of journalists killed in the country and so on is truly staggering. Um, there's, there's, you know, danger, but it's not, it's not, you're not free censored and people use their freedom. People speak sometimes with alarming courage, their mind. Uh, and I think that's also quite inspiring. And of course, my best wishes and prayers also for you. I know, you know, you, you put yourself really on the front. I mean, the, the difficult things with being a, a scholar nowadays is you might end up pissing off almost everyone, right? I mean, like, that's <laughs> the problem. I have succeeded. I've pissed off yeah, quite it's, a number it's, of people. It's, it's like, you're, you know I'm saying, like, if you want to be intellectually honest, you're automatically going to end up as a political orphan. 
Like that's really the tragedy of the situation, right? Uh, that's why I'm. I mean, I and Lele are one of our favorite uh, books. Is the burden of responsibility, right? About Camus and you know Aaron and you know. So I I really suggest for anyone who's having a moment of despair, go and read it. I mean, Camus. Uh, you know, the life is has been a huge inspiration for me, despite all of his frailties and 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 imperfections. Now, can you now plug? Uh, I mean, go ahead. Make make. Sure. <laughs> go ahead. This what's your book and what's your TikTok account? And how can the people follow you? I know you also have a YouTube yes. channel, etc. Yeah. Yes. So this will have to be the final thing because I just saw and noticed that my battery is about to die. Me too. Um, yeah, I was like a 5% here. So go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, I have a book coming out, The Drama of Dictatorship with Cornell University Press, which should be followed with an Ateneo edition. Uh, there will be an electronic version. I encourage people when it comes out to get a copy. I think you will find it exciting and also eye-opening. Uh, I also, I'm on Facebook. Uh, if you look for Joseph Scalise on Facebook, uh, I am on Twitter at Joseph Scalise on Twitter. Um, I am on YouTube again, Joseph Scalise, YouTube and on TikTok, same yes, name, that's it. uniform throughout. Um, and, uh, yeah, please do follow me. Yeah, definitely. The, the TikTok one was really inspiring to me. It's like, you, you, just went it. you went for it, man. You went for it. I said, that's what I'm saying. Like, See, Shepard, there's a lot of snobbery by an academic's intellect. It's like, oh, TikTok, I don't want to dance. I said, no, you don't have to dance there. Do something interesting, right? And I think yeah, 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 yeah. you were among the first who were there and you did pretty well. So congratulations. Looking forward to reading your book and looking forward to uh, continuing this discussion because I know you have done so much research. We have talked about so much in the past that I, I believe this is just going to be the first volume. I think there's so much to come in. Of course, all of us are now going to start writing also about Marcus Jr., what comes for the Philippines, and of course, on my part, Philippines, U.S., China, all of that. So I really looking, I look forward, God willing, inshallah, looking forward to more conversation with you. Thank you so much, uh, Joseph. Thank you, Richard. This has been a delight. Grazie, grazie mille, grazie mille. Ciao. Talk yeah. to you.